Welcome to Between the Gutters, where we talk about the stories within panels. I'm your co-host, Albert, and this is our other co-host. I am the other co-host. My name is Drew. What's up, everybody? We are back from our bye week. How you doing, Albert? How was Hawaii? It was good, man. It was a nice, relaxing break. Uh, we had a good wedding. Uh, you know, our friend's wedding. We attended that. We celebrated his their nuptials, and uh, you know, I, I am adequately refreshed and invigorated and ready to uh, podcast this week. Excellent, yourself. Man. Same, man. It was good to be out there. Had a good time. We were able to hit up a couple of comic book stores while we were in Honolulu. We posted one of the uh, locations that we visited over on our Instagram stories uh, earlier in the week. That place was an interesting store. What was it called? High Collector? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, that place, when the car dropped us off, we were in kind of this industrial sector part of town. And it didn't really look like there were any stores. All all the closest businesses were uh, like auto shops and things of that nature. So yeah, it took us a while to find it. We saw a sign pointing up a building, and it led us to this location that kind of looked like an apartment complex. Well, I think it might have been an apartment complex. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing was, the sign was basically on the side of what I can only describe as a, a, a parking lot or a multi, multi-story parking lot. Yeah. So instinctually, I don't think... Too many people would have intuitively thought to just go up the ramp into this parking structure, but really there was nowhere else to go. So we were just like, okay, let's just go up this this ramp that you know traffic goes through and see what's what what we find at the top of it. Yeah, yeah. And then at the top. <clears throat> We uh, see this bigger apartment building across the way, and it's connected to the parking structure by this old rickety metal fence, or not fence, a uh, bridge. And I got to say, man, crossing that bridge felt like the most adventurous thing I've ever done <laughs> to go to a comic book store. Yeah, yeah. It At the time of it, I, th- I don't think, well... I think it was just better for me to not think about it, so I just willed myself across the bridge, and once I was about 75% of the way through it, uh, you can definitely feel the shakiness of it, and there was a part of me that I think deep down inside I knew that this wasn't the safest structure when I first took a step on it, but like I said, I had to turn that part of my brain off and just will myself into going, and it wasn't until three quarters of the way through the bridge that my my survival instincts kicked in. And, you know, at that point, what I thought was going to happen did happen, which was I had to convince myself that I was either going to continue going or, or not. I mean, there was no way that I was just going to stop there and there was no way that I was going to go back. I, I essentially lied to myself in order to force myself to cross this pretty dilapidated bridge that I I was very concerned about. Yeah, we were, it was at least three stories up, possibly yeah. four. Yeah. And the other thing is, 
it just looked so worn down and old that yeah. I was worried about even just touching the side railing, you know? I was worried that something would break off or, uh, you know, it would just shake the structure while we were crossing it. And I also yeah. noticed, uh, looking at it, when, after we had crossed it, and I looked at it from the opposite angle on the other end, the bottom of the bridge was totally rusty. Like, there were just tons of spots of rust all over the the i don't know what the architectural term is but just where those where all the bolts and stuff uh connect it it, it really made me feel uh uneasy man I, I wasn't i wasn't about to do it again if we could help it you know? <laughs> well i mean that's exactly why i just thought it was better to lie to myself and trick myself into doing exactly what i needed to do <laughs> I think I think if I had given myself too much time, I would have talked myself out of it. So I knew right off the bat that I had to just will myself to do it. I think even before stepping foot on that little bridge, I I thought it was going to be a bad idea and I I really didn't want to, but once I saw you start walking on it, I was like, "Okay, I guess I got to walk on this too." Yeah, that was part of my plan, too, because I didn't want to give you any time to try to talk me out of it. So I just figured <laughs> once I made it across, you'd have no other choice but to come with me. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to be like, hey, Albert, man, let's go look for a, a different way into that building. Yeah, let's walk around. Let's walk around the block first and scout it out. <laughs> I mean, I don't trust I don't trust these next 20 meters. Yeah, I I could feel your apprehension and your anxiety resonating off you as we were standing there. But like I said, I just willed myself into doing it and just blindly trusted that you would follow me. <laughs> <laughs> well, your blind trust in me was rewarded. And I guess you could even say your blind trust in that rickety old bridge was rewarded too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean... It was really hot out there, so if you had told me that, uh, if you had rec recommended that we walk all the way back down and look for another way in, I, I don't know if I would have been super into that, just because <laughs> I didn't want to deal with the heat any more than I had to. Um, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a peek inside how my mind works. Essentially, the shortest point between two distances in my mind is always a straight line, so that's just how I view every problem is what's the easiest, fastest way to get there. Yeah. Yeah. That was definitely a straight line. Yeah. A straight shot to the store. I think I, I was also telling myself, well, if we die here falling off this bridge or if it collapses on us, at least we'll die at the same time. So I won't be alone in my, as we plummet to, to our deaths or at least severe injury. I, I guess there's something. Say, there's something comforting about knowing that somebody else <laughs> will suffer the same fate as you. I was going to say, I appreciated you saying that we weren't, I appreciated you not saying that we were going to die, quote unquote, together. But that last part, for all intents and purposes, pretty much had the same effect. So yeah, I, I didn't mean like we would, <laughs> we would uh, be holding hands as we, uh, 
plummeted to our doom or anything like that because i i think i would still rather just uh you know live fall by myself oh okay but <laughs> by by dying together i i only meant that we would uh simultaneously plummet from the bridge yeah uh, yeah like literally our our physical forms would be within the vicinity of one another as yeah, we yeah. died yeah. yeah i'm not i'm not saying that that uh, it's not a Romeo and Juliet thing where you fall down and then I'm like, okay, I'm gonna jump off too. Yeah, yeah I, I don't want that. Yeah, that that I would certainly do not want that. <laughs> definitely not. That would definitely never happen. <laughs> if if you fell off first, man, I would just call nine one one, scream for help, and then check out the comic book store. Sounds good. I'm with that. Uh, that makes sense. I think that is the most that you could do. And uh, I'm okay with that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so that was our trip to Hawaii. <laughs> did you have any other uh, anecdotes? We did come up with that one comic book store. I forget what the name of that one was, but that one place was pretty good. The other, uh, the bigger one? Yeah. Other Realms, that's what other it was realms. called. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there were a few comic book stores on the island, but I think they were just just far enough from each other where the further out we went the more of a i don't have any other word for it but the more of a hassle it would have been to get there you know yeah exactly exactly so we went to the ones that were just close enough without you know being a burden i don't don't think i don't think we went anywhere that was farther than 25 minutes away by driving yeah yeah exactly yeah but we, we did what? find some good stuff at other realms. They that was a pretty big store. They yeah. had a few they dollar bins. They yeah, legit. they had dollar bins. They had a bunch of fifty percent off and cheaper trade paperbacks and hardcovers. They had a ton of back issues. The other a funny thing is, stuff, yeah, when when we were exiting the store after we had bought our stuff, we we talked to the guy. You know, us not being locals, we we kind of wanted to get a feel for the comic scene in the in the area. So we asked him about what, you know, what other comic book stores were around and whether any of them were worth checking out. And the guy, I don't know if he meant to do this out of sincerity or if he meant to do this as just, you know, a cunning scheme in order to, you know, keep all the business for himself. If he was that shrewd of a business strategist, um, but he essentially looked at us and went, yeah, there's some comic shops in the on uh, around here, but you know, there's this one place, but it's it's really tiny. It's maybe about a quarter of the size of our store. Really, just kind of talking us out of going, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then he he even ended it by going, yeah, I guess they got some stuff, just to make it sound like he was being magnanimous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but. Whether whether that was the case or not, it was enough for us to go, eh, I don't want to drive like 45 minutes away from our our hotel to to, you know, to chance finding nothing. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yep. So that was our trip to Hawaii. I guess uh, this would be a good chance now to uh, talk about this week's episode. eh? Yeah, man. We are going to be talking about We Three by Grant Morrison, Frank Quitely, Jamie Grant, and Todd Klein. 
This is part of our DC Top 25 Honorable Mentions list. As you guys who have been listening to us for a while know, we originally started our podcast by doing a Marvel Top 25, and uh, we promised that we'd eventually get around to doing a DC Top 25. And we we basically have our DC Top 25 list finalized, but yep. we also had a bunch of other DC comics that we felt like talking about. We three happens to be one of them. Yep. So yeah, these comics, the stuff that ended up making our top 25 list, they're not necessarily our personal favorites, but we came up with a set of criteria and then scored all of the comics that we thought would uh, be worthy of consideration. And that's how we ended up determining what made our final list. So it's not just a list of what we think are the best or what our favorites are. It's completely scientific. And what else can I say? Well, I was going to say that we, like you said, I mean, although these are comics that we like and enjoy, we we had our list of criteria and, you know, in a sign of our integrity, we decided to adhere to that list, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, to the best of our ability. Um, and, you know, what 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 our criteria uh, generated and and what we calculated, we we decided to stick to it. So, unfortunately, that means that there are some things that are very good that just don't make it. And hey, that's life sometimes. Exactly. But exactly. This, this should be a sign of our commitment to our formula that we stand by. So mm-hmm. there you go. There you go. See what we do for you people. Uh, all right so we three is a comic that was originally published as a three issue miniseries in 2004 it was part of dc's vertigo imprint and i listed the creative team earlier i'll just reiterate their roles grant morrison was the writer frank quitely was the line artist, Jamie Grant was the digital inker and colorist, and Todd Klein was the letterer. So how about giving the good people a brief synopsis of We Three, Albert? What's We Three all about? Well, there's a covert government program that is designing super weapons that are going to fight the wars of tomorrow. And it turns out that in this particular case, these these super weapons take the form of three cyber, or, cyber organically augmented house pets. A dog, which is named one, a cat, which is named two, and a bunny, which is named three. And it's about how these three pets go on a mission and you know they're being observed by uh, a senator and upon discovering what they are he's pretty freaked out by him and he decides that they need to be terminated and as a result of a bunch of events that take place uh, the animals get loose and it becomes a story about the government hunting them down 
but it's also a story about these animals just wanting to exist peacefully, uh, completely unawares of the machinations of of men. So it's their story. Mm-hmm. How's that sound? I think if if I'm remembering the story correctly, I think it's not the senator who decides to decommission we three. I think it's actually the general who's in charge of the project. He's the one who decides to end or terminate the the project. Uh, I thought he terminated it because the senator was kind of freaked out by it and basically said that they were going to cut funding on it or something, something to that effect. Now you got me flipping through the comic again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, maybe that it's a thing of interpretation, but that's that's how I I read it because it was the the animals were meant originally out there performing a you know they were being observed for uh no I, yeah I, f- I found the panel it, it is the general it's okay. not got, it's got I don't think it really has anything to do with the senator he's obviously surprised that. This is possible, but yeah. they, he's, he's surprised that they've created these cyborg animals to to be, you know, these military weapons. But it's it's really just the general who decides that they're going to decommission mm. the, the animals who are referred to collectively as we three. Right. Yeah. Okay. All the, right. The scandal of it is... Be- that the senator that comes to visit early in the story, uh, he's uh, got higher political aspirations. So any connection he has to this project or even the knowledge of it will be kind of a scandal or a taint on his it'll ruin, uh, campaign. It'll ruin his career. Right. Yeah. yeah. And that's I think that's why the general is so intent on chasing these animals down after they break free. Yeah, well, I mean, amongst other things. Like, they are killing machines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you do kind of get the sense that the only reason why he, or the main reason why he cares about uh, the potential loss of life is because it'll be... It'll come back to him. him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. If if he... It, it feels as if if all those people... If the lives of people that were endangered by these animals could in no way get back to him, I'm pretty sure he'd be fine just letting them go out there and, you know, create whatever havoc, uh, you know, create whatever havoc that they're going to create. So, yeah, that's a good point. Do you want to talk about, you know, just kind of our, our background with the comic? Just, you know... Let's talk a little bit about the creators behind the comic, specifically Morrison and Quitely, because they're two pretty big names. And I think that any discussion of the greatest or the top DC comics, it's inevitably going to include and involve both of them or either of them. Mm-hmm. What can you tell the listeners about Grant Morrison? <clears throat> Uh, Grant Morrison is a pretty prolific comic book writer. Uh, he's written a lot of the comics that have, I think it's fair to say that he's shaped and molded comics past a certain era, like, uh, you know, 
within the era of the 80s and moving forward, he he was definitely one of the most creative talents and voices that came out of that stable of writers. And he's just got an entire body of works that you can point to over and over again as just works that have just shaped the the industry you know so mm-hmm. we're talking about works like animal man we're talking about works like doom patrol um his batman arkham asylum for the longest time i don't know it, it might even still be now i i'd have to i'd have to look into the numbers but for the longest time it was hailed as one of the like highest selling uh dc books of all time if i i think that's right right arkham asylum yeah uh i believe it was dc's best-selling graphic novel at some point i, f- I forget yeah. exactly yeah uh I, f- I feel like we uh discussed this back when we talked about our about batman comics but i, I don't remember the specific statistic anymore yeah i but it's something that i feel like i always hear getting thrown out there whenever they talk about it okay i I, I just i just looked it up yeah yeah. um by 2004 uh it sold close to half a million copies making it the best-selling original graphic novel in american superhero comics yeah which is pretty crazy and well it's not the type of statistic that usually necessarily impresses me or Drew because there's a lot of stuff that sells that doesn't necessarily deserve praise. But in this case, it just happens to be the cross-section between something that was highly lucrative but also creatively and artistically, uh, you know, with merit. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so it's worth mentioning it here for sure. It's uh, in terms of Grant Morrison's works, I'd say that I don't even know how I would describe it, but he does inject a lot of like, would you say like postmodern ideas or or like I I, think so yeah yeah, right so it's just I I guess lots of uh, philosophical ideas and concepts just yeah, stuff that's go. uh literary high minded <laughs> i don't know if i would say high minded necessarily yeah but uh i think yeah literary is fair and i also yeah. think it would be fair to say that his works pretty much tend to go against the grain of what's standard or normal especially yeah. in superhero comics because with especially with big two superhero comics, you always expect things to be so straight laced and buttoned up. And there's a certain formula and pattern, uh, the way things work uh, in the stories, but his, his superhero comics tend to be uh, reactionary or uh, counterintuitive at times. And they just, it's almost like he goes out of his way to be different in order to make his stories seem more creative and stand out which me personally i think is a great thing because i'd I'd rather take that kind of ambition and the risk that he's willing to take i'd rather take that than your typical cookie cutter jobber comic yeah 
that isn't to say that there aren't a lot of writers who do shoot for the fences only to come off as pretentious or only to fail miserably, but it just so happens that Grant Morrison has the chops to back it up. Yeah. And I do think that some of his stuff is quite pretentious and some of the stuff not, I don't necessarily love everything that Morrison has made, but even the ones, even the comics that Morrison has done that I, I'm not super fond of, I still have respect for them. And I think they're still uh, worthy of time and attention. You know, I'm thinking of some of the older things that he's written, like um, the mystery play. That was a, a vertigo graphic novel. There was also the kid eternity story that he did. I think that was either early vertigo or might've even predated vertigo, but it has that vertigo vibe to it. Yeah. But, you know, things like that, they're not comics that I would say have a fondness for or that resonate with me, but I do respect them. And I I think if you're studying his works and you have an affinity for his work in general, then things like that are worth reading. You know, they're they're valuable uses of your time. You know, I'd rather read I'd rather reread the mystery play than read. I don't know. What else was going on around that time? Scott Lobdell X-Men comic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know, uh, Onslaught? <laughs> or, yeah. Well, I, I guess it depends on, on which era of his works you're talking about. But, yeah, the like, essentially what you're saying is you'd rather read a bad Grant Morrison comic than, you know... Jim Lee's and Chris Claremont's X-Men or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, I'd happen to agree. Um, I don't know if I'm quite there with you when it comes to the idea of being a uh, comic academic or, or a scholar in the sense that, you know, I have to read every everything that he's ever done. Um I, I see the merit in it. I see the value of it. I don't know if I personally would read everything he's ever done, but yeah, I, I respect him for his work. And I do think that when he's firing on all cylinders at his very best, he's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think I go out of my way to read everything that he's done. He's, I think the only writers that I do that with would be Joe Casey and Peter Milligan, but Grant Morrison is still somebody whose comics I've read a ton of his comics just because they happen to be interesting comics and I wanted to read them, but there's definitely a lot of, a lot of his uh, earlier and more obscure work, especially the stuff that he did with UK publishers. I have, I haven't read too many of those other than a handful of judge dread comics and uh, not judge dread uh, 2000 AD. And uh, I read a little bit of I read his Zenith series, but uh, I think I have some of his Judge Dread stories. I just haven't gotten around to reading them. But yeah, uh, you know, there's like a ton of stuff he did before he ingrained himself in DC comics uh, that I I'm just not familiar with. But most of his most of his work in in uh, America was with DC and. If, uh, he did some Marvel work, but 
uh, for the most part. I, I think I've read a good chunk of his DC and Marvel stuff, including uh, most of his Vertigo stuff. I'm sure there are gaps here and there, but uh, I feel like I've read a significant amount of his work to know uh, what kind of writer he is and what what I can the level of quality I can typically expect. I think the biggest gap in my Grant Morrison personal knowledge is the Invisibles. That's the one thing I haven't read in its entirety. Yeah, it's a. Uh... I've read like half of it because the library only had half of it. Or I know the slackers got to get. It was really gotta weird. Got to get the rest of it. It's really weird. They had like the first four volumes, and then there was a gap, and then they had the rest of it. But you know, if you're reading a long form story, that's kind of pointless to pick up after yeah. the gap because yeah, exactly. It, it just hurts the entire reading experience. So I never was able to finish it. But uh. It's a thing where I, I can't say this with any certainty, but yeah, like the work, the invisibles is something that you could look at as a precursor to something like the matrix. And, and again, I don't know if, you know, the Wachowskis like read the invisibles or, or what sort of influence it had on them, but a lot of the ideas that were in this comic before the matrix came out were ideas that we would see in, in that movie later on. So, you know, just as just something to give you an idea of uh, uh, the kind of storytelling that he tells, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Do you have any particular favorite Grant Morrison comics? Oh wow. Uh I think the ones that I tend to gravitate to are probably something like um I do have the Animal Man omnibus. That's something that I that I that I loved. Um I I have his All-Star Superman. Um I think unlike you, uh my, my the whole in my Grant Morrison reading library has been Doom Patrol actually, and that's like one of his like most highest touted pieces of work. So I think I've just been trying to find it to read it. I I did find a bunch of the paperbacks for pretty cheap, but I'm still just missing volume two and volume five, so I never was able to read them in their entirety. Um, I think the omnibus came out not too long ago and I just kept telling myself that if I ever found it cheap enough, I would buy it, but I just haven't found it cheap enough. So, you know, it's just one of those things where I think I've just got so many things to read that I just ended up putting it on the shelf Mm -hmm. uh, or, or on the back burner while I read everything else. And it's always been on my mind to read it someday uh, because I, I was aware that, you know, in, in terms of just the great comics that you should read, Doom Patrol is easily on that list, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, so I'd say Animal Man and his All-Star Superman are some of my favorite things. Uh, I will also say that I have 
I've also collected some of his less ambitious stuff where I, I wouldn't say that he's just dialing it in, but you know, he, he's not necessarily exploring high concepts or anything like that. So like one of the, like, series you don't think uh, his... Santa Claus as a barbarian is a high concept. <laughs> no. <laughs> Dang man, you got high expectations. Uh, I don't think it's the kind of concept that reinvents uh, literature as we know it, but Dude, yeah, <laughs> Sam, that clause is Christmas meets Conan. How can you top that? Uh, Christmas meets Terminator. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I was gonna say that I I did end up collecting the Klaus series, and that's something where it again, it's not necessarily him experimenting or or doing anything like off the wall but it is a fun comic about what if santa claus was you know a a fantasy hero essentially yeah yeah a a barbarian that fights snowmen and uh demons and goblins and uh he delivers toys once a year (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, as you do. Um, yeah. What about you, Drew? What's what's uh, what's on on your shelf of Grant Morrison greats? Uh, well, I would say Doom Patrol is probably at the top of that list, I think. But I have a lot of love for We Three and All Star Superman. Pretty much all the stuff that he done with Frank Quitely. Yeah. Uh, like the the Batman and Robin arc that they did um x-men the new x-men yeah Yeah. so like anytime he and and quietly work together that's sure to be something i gravitate to but other than their collaborations it'd probably be doom patrol and his jla comics yeah yeah it's i feel like his name comes up a lot on our podcast and maybe that dates us um it's it's interesting to think that he he still has a lot of pull over at DC. Uh, obviously, he he just completed a Green Lantern run like you know a couple of years ago now, maybe more. I I don't know the exact number of years, but you know I I feel like if he ever wants to do anything at DC, they'll give it to him. Uh, I'm not I, sure I, about that. Really? Yeah, because oh. I I could be totally misremembering something. Uh, that I think I read, but I was under the impression that once he finished the Green Lantern run he was working on, he was pretty much done at DC. And I don't know if that was completely his choice or just uh, the notion that because of the way the market is, they're just less interested in, in hiring him to do stuff. Because for the better part of two decades he was one of the dominant voices at dc right like he yeah. had the whole like from the late 80s or early 90s you know animal man and and doom patrol he really left a stamp uh at vertigo but he was also doing stuff like jla uh in the mainstream yeah. dc universe and then uh in the 2000s he was doing stuff like all-star superman 52 final crisis he had a really long run on batman 
Yeah. Even when the New 52 began, he had a few works in there, like uh, Action Comics. He he did stuff there. And uh, he took a break to go to Marvel for a little bit. And then when he came back, he, he, yeah, he basically reclaimed his throne over at DC, right? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah. And, you know, after the New 52, even in that New 52 era, he was still working. He was working on action comics and, yeah, his Batman stuff was still going on. And, and then, like, the, we was, the multiversity. Yeah, the multiversity. And, like we said, it, uh, the most recent thing that he did were those Green Lantern comics. But I wasn't aware that there was any sort of a friction. I, I just, I don't know. Yeah. Granted, like I said, they, I, I could be misremembering an interview that I read or heard. Yeah. But I was under the impression that DC wasn't too interested in hanging on to his services. And he was ready to move on. I mean, as we are recording this podcast in early September, uh, Earlier this week, he had just released a prose novel called Luda. Mm. So he's obviously keeping busy. He's still writing. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I don't think he. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily depends on DC. You know, there. He doesn't. He's he's a good enough writer that he can. I think he can kind of do what he wants. Um, I'm pretty sure he's on Substack, where he has he's a built Substack. enough of name yeah. recognition for himself that. Like you said, he doesn't really need DC anymore at this point. Yeah, frankly, I think they need him more than he needs them. Yeah, uh, just in terms of churning out like good comics, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I forget what point I was trying to make. <laughs> 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 Thanks, Drew. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, man. I'm, I'm here to distract you so that you don't think about falling off a rickety old bridge. Right, right. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, going to make you think about all this other stuff so you forget your point and, you know, you're completely unaware of the danger that will soon overtake you. Well, I mean, if anything, we've seen that I can do... I'm I'm plenty fine doing that on my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but... uh, Yeah, the point being, he's had a very long career over at DC and, you know, I don't know like what his standing with them is but uh it, it's i i don't think he's maybe I, I don't know if he's like as recognizable as name as someone like neil gaiman or anything like that but i think he's close like yeah just in terms of like people who were able to like branch out and kind of make a thing for themselves uh like uh this might be a kind of crass to call it this but to make a brand, quote unquote, brand of for themselves, like I think sure. Grant Morrison has been pretty successful as as at that. He's a pretty charismatic guy. I I do like him. Uh, I do like it when he does interviews on podcasts or like shows or whatever. He's just a very like one. He's got that accent, which is just you know like honey to the ears. Yeah, and Scottish two, accent. Yeah, and two, he's. He's a really engaging speaker, just really fun to listen to. Like, you can really see where he gets his storytelling abilities. Um, I, I remember listening to him on uh, the Kevin Smith podcast a couple of times. Uh, I did see the other day that he was on uh, the the Late Show with Seth Meyers, 
and uh, he was promoting his new book, so I should watch that interview. But uh, I do find it, I do take it as a personal treat when I see a really long, really, really long, uh, like, podcast episode that he happens to be on. Mm -hmm. Like, there's always, like, really fun little anecdotes or ideas that he plays around with. I remember he, when he was on, um, when he was on the podcast with Kevin Smith, one of the things that he was talking about was The Killing Joke written by Alan Moore and how he wrote, how his interpretation of that was as the very last, the final Batman and Joker story and how at the end of it, you know, the Batman, the, the end of the story ends with Batman and the Joker laughing in the rain and Grant Morrison describes how you just see Batman batman's hand reaching over and then the laughing stops or just fades into the night and how he interprets that as yeah batman <laughs> kills the joker in that moment <laughs> he just chokes the life <laughs> i don't believe that i don't think that's accurate and i'm pretty sure that's not what bolin and alan moore intended but yeah. it, it's a funny thing to hear from another writer it is it is and just the way that he describes it and the way that uh he talked about it it, it sold me on it. Just, if anything, just the idea of entertaining that was something that I had fun with for a few days after hearing his his theory. <laughs> I wonder if he came up with that theory just to annoy Alan Moore. You know they have beef, right? Yeah, they're not they're not friendly with one another. I'm, yeah. I'm aware of that. Uh, <laughs> they yeah they they've got a weird uh, relationship. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm not gonna go too deep into it but suffice it to say they don't like each other very much but it'd be funny if he came up with that specifically just to stick his thumb in alan moore's eye (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah what about frank quitely the artist of we three what are your thoughts on his work i think his work is it's pretty spectacular uh like I don't really know how else to describe it, but it's it's that thing where he is such a talented artist that he can draw things that are almost kind of almost grotesque to look at, but it takes skill and talent to be able to draw something with that texture and that look almost in the way that, in the same way that someone like Richard Corbin, who is like technically a very like proficient artist but very good at drawing like ugly things mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like I, I do think that frank quietly is able to to very much so to draw in a way that's aesthetically pleasing but it's just interesting to me how he draws people because they're they always seem like just fleshy sacks of meat when, when i when i think about how he draws people you know yeah, just yeah. just the texture of their skin and the shape of their bodies. They're always kind of pudgy or like almost like giant babies, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 what I think of when I think of his work. Um, he's someone I've definitely that's, heard. Yeah, I've definitely heard a lot of people complain about how he draws people and their faces. Yeah, but I think their complaints are usually usually along the lines of i don't like how this looks therefore he's a bad artist yeah but i think that's 
it's a misinterpretation of of what you're seeing, right? Because, yeah, exactly. It, it's pretty. It's it's pretty. Uh, it's, uh, it's an uneducated way of reading a comic. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, like I think if we realize that it takes someone's ability to know how to draw well in order to purposefully draw things that are unsettling in a way that it reaches you i think that's i think that takes talent that takes skill you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's i'm not gonna say that it's easy to draw things that look good but i do think it's easy to look at something that looks good and say that is good <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> <laughs> i think good that's point. an oversimplification uh you know uh, like art is about capturing all sorts of things not just the beauty of things but also capturing you know how how ugly things are sometimes Mm -hmm. and having the proficiency to do that that's a real skill and talent in and of itself yeah yeah he's worked he's worked with grant morrison on quite a few things uh Flex Mentalo is one of the things that I can think of. All-Star Superman, as well as uh, his new X-Men we mentioned earlier, and uh, We Three. So, but he's he's had a pretty big career outside of that. I think. Oh, well, I, I presume that you you know more of his stuff. Uh, well, in terms of his interior work, I I feel like mainly I know his collaborations with Morrison. And Mark Miller, because yeah. he's done a good amount of stuff with Mark Miller, uh, specifically thinking about the Authority as well as Jupiter's legacy. Yeah, but he also seems like somebody who who doesn't do an abundant amount of interiors. Maybe it's because he's not as fast as some artists, so yeah, he, he's usually reserved for special projects and miniseries and things like that. But anytime I do see his name on a comic, I got to check it out just because he is one of my favorite artists. Yeah. 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 And I do know that DC made an art book of just his stuff. Uh, yeah. I, I bought that. that. Called. Uh, I believe it's called graphic ink. Yeah. Yeah. We found that at the Apple for like cheap, right? Yeah. It was like, Maybe half off, which yeah, is pretty 50%. dang good. Yeah. yeah. When, when I saw that, I was like, yeah, I'm just going to buy this. Yeah. Great. Yeah, it's yeah. got a bunch of his obscure, more obscure works and some of the short stories that he did for various Vertigo anthologies. And uh, he, I don't know if you remember back in the, I want to say the mid towards mid and late 90s, paradox press which was another dc comics imprint they had this series of comics called the big book of and like each each book would be titled something different so there would be like something called the big book of crime or the big book of uh conspiracies or whatever you know like all these different categories and he would draw uh various uh short stories in in those books too and a lot of those, maybe, I'm not sure if all of them, but at least some of those stories are in that graphic ink hardcover. So it's something that any art aficionado or fan of Frank uh, Quitely should check out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I guess 
I will say that he has a very unique art style, and I do think it's a shame that we get so little of his work, but so much of, you know, guys like Ivan Rice or whoever, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just Greg Capullo or something. Just, you know, the kind of art that maybe everybody else likes because look at how much muscles they have or look how (laughs) cool that looks. But he, yeah, I, I think we're, we're less for not having more of his artwork in comics. Yeah. I mean, I feel like people who are pretty serious about comics all have a lot of respect and admiration for his work. Yeah. I'm pretty sure like most professional comic book artists are fans of his stuff, you know? Or yeah, if, yeah, yeah. if they're not necessarily fans, at the very least, they don't think he's a bad artist or anything. Yeah. But I feel, yeah. I feel like I've come across too many uh Either Your casual average person, fans, like yeah, or yeah. average people. People, it's it's either people who just like your typical jobber comics, your typical yeah. jobber cape comics, or people who don't read comics that much in general, but are just uh, interested in something it, yeah. for whatever reason. Like they're not normal comic book readers. A lot of those kind of readers and people don't seem to really appreciate and like his art because I've had friends where they've asked me. Hey, what's an X Men comic I can check out, or what, what's an X Men comic you would recommend? And I'll just point them to Neo X Men, uh, starting with the first arc, E is for Extinction, right? Uh, and and that one was the story that quietly drew. And they'll, they can't get past it. They can't get past it. They they don't yeah. like the art, and that's enough to like put them off uh, comics. You know, like they'll go, they go back to their manga or whatever. Yeah. Or go back to watching uh, TV or something. Yeah, it's like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I really don't get it, man. Like, I, I, I personally don't understand why well, people don't appreciate his art. That's the thing about average people, Drew. They're average. We above average. I'm definitely better than them. <laughs> you like that? Yeah, you made me laugh, man. I, w- <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be I wanted to to be absolutely certain that that I I made no 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 uh misgivings about it. I I wanted to be clear that I consider myself better than them. <laughs> <laughs> they are beneath me. <laughs> well, but that's the thing. Uh I mean, we mentioned this earlier, but I think for a lot of people, it's very easy for them to confuse, like, their enjoyment of something and something, quote-unquote, looking good as as their metric for whether something is actually good. Mm-hmm. And I know that's a weird, like, way to put that out there. Because, you know, of course, how else would you consider whether something's good, right? Yeah, it has to be good. But again, like there's a lot of talent in being able to capture ugliness in an effective way. And even though it doesn't necessarily make you feel good, I think you can recognize like the the talent of it and the skill of it. Mm-hmm. You know, in spite of 
whatever it makes you feel. But that's not, I don't feel like that that's an argument that really convinces or compels most people. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. I agree. Yeah. It's, it, it kind of reminds me of people who talk about how they don't like sad stories. They, they only want stories with happy endings or happy stories, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I, I think it's similar to that. And it's just like, if that's what you like, that's what you like. I I, I don't really have anything to say to that. Well, no, not <laughs> You true. do. You definitely I have, have things, things to say. <laughs> I have things that I definitely can say and would say. <laughs> Heck, I'd have things that I'd do. I'd probably spit in your eye. I don't know. Make out with your mother. Just to just to just to make a point, you know, like <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> but <laughs> I need to start introducing you to the friends of mine who have really bad taste. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's just there's never yeah I I always feel like it's a, a losing argument to have because there's never anything that I can really do or say to to have them see like how multifaceted art should be and how complex it can be right yeah like if 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 it just boils down to this just looks cool and that's enough then well uh good for you man um yeah <laughs> <laughs> here's your poo on a stick enjoy <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. And about Frank Quitely, I do think that the stuff that he did here in We Three is a turning point in mainstream comics. It's There's some stuff in here that I think is absolutely outstanding. He's very inventive and creative in designing pages and conveying time and motion and chaos. I think it just speaks to his skill because he's he's really good at designing stuff like when you look at his x-men comics the way that he designed their uniforms and their uh even the covers that he did like everything's always just so visually appealing and polished yeah but when you look at his interior comics art he's a really really good storyteller who's who's just got a mastery of how to present information to the reader in a way yeah. that really fits the tone of the story and gives you a feeling of especially in an action comic like this he does a really good job of conveying that feeling of speed and um the viciousness of some of the action that that happens yeah. Like it, it's really, really clever. I think, I think the artwork is what makes We Three work so well for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess that's a as good a transition as any for us to get into the actual talking of the comic, unless you wanted to go into some more anecdotal stuff. I guess I'm just curious. Do you remember the first time you read We Three? <laughs> Uh, I don't remember exactly when, uh, but I I will say this, um, the immediate appeal of it is 
something when I think about it now makes me hate the probably the person that I was then that liked it. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, let me let me let me explain. I think at the time I was into it because you know it was Homeward Bound meets the Terminator or something like that. <laughs> you know, and I, I feel think like that at, was literally one of the selling points or the taglines they used to convince probably, people to buy it. it. It wouldn't surprise me if it was you know exactly Homeward Bound meets the Terminator, which is a story about animals trying to find a way home, but there just happen to be killer cyborgs. See. It's a fusion of two awesome ideas. And maybe at the time, that was the sort of thing that, for me, was enough. Because I was like, well, one, Grant Morrison wrote it. But look at that premise. (laughs) Hubba, hubba, beluga. You know? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, don't get me wrong. It's it's a fun premise. But I I don't want to be reductive about it even if it can be reduced to just that, because I just hate that, mm-hmm. <laughs> just on principle. But but yeah, um, I don't really remember the first time I actually read it, because um, I, I feel like this is a book that I've come across several times in my life. Um, actually, now that I think about it, now that I think about it, I do remember. Because okay. I think... When it first came out, I did buy it in a trade paperback. So I, I, I owned the trade paperback for a while, and I read it. And I think after I read it, I actually sold my copy back to the Apple. Dang. Yeah. Wait. That's harsh. Hear me out, though. And then a few years later, I did find it in uh, <laughs> the Apple. It wasn't my copy, but I did find it in the Apple for uh, $3 in the discount bin. So the I decided. Paperback? To, yeah, the paperback. So I decided okay. to buy the paperback because it was three bucks. And I was like, you know what? I'll get it again for three bucks. And I reread it. <laughs> and funny. I was like, yeah. So I was like, okay, I reread it and I enjoyed it. And uh, not too long. Well, no, no, no. I won't say not too long. But after that, uh, a few years passed. And I ended up finding the deluxe hardcover version of it that they came out with uh, a few years after the series came out. Uh, and I say a few years is just shorthand for, you know, an unknown amount of time after the series came out because I don't know how long the the deluxe hardcover came out. But uh, I saw that on the shelf, and I think by then my feelings on the book had evolved to 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 the degree that I was actually pretty high on the book. So when I did find it at the Apple on the shelf uh, for the hardcover at 50% off, I was like, I have to get this. And the thing about it is the deluxe hardcover actually has 10 extra pages of story and art. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I, I bought it right then and there. I I forgot what I did with my old copy. I think I might have sold it back to the Apple. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, we're just an Ouroboros at this point. <laughs> or, Shouts to, shout outs to the Green Apple in San Francisco for yeah. continually <laughs> buying our reheated leftovers. <laughs> well, if I think about it now, though, I probably would have given that copy to someone because it's it's something worth giving to someone. It's it's definitely a great book, but yeah, and, and that that was my experience with uh, We Three. So it, I think it took a long time for me to get to where I am about it, but 
yeah, it, it's def. I definitely have love and appreciation for it now. What do you think changed in between the time when you sold your original copy to the time that the to the point where you got the second copy and it grew on you? I think if I had to think about it now, uh, thinking back, I think there were just things about the emotional beats that weren't hitting hitting me where I wanted them to hit me. Like I I don't know like. I think there was definitely a complexity to Frank Quietly's storytelling that made it a bit of a challenge to read. And it it's, in retrospect, it's probably something that required multiple readings on my part in order to finally pick up all of the various details that I needed in order for me to make a whole story in my head you know because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I, I remember the first time i read it there were things about it in terms of what i was looking at where i wasn't really sure what was happening even though you know the larger beat the, the larger storytelling beat of it was these pets run away they want to find a home and don't you feel bad for them that the government's trying to kill them you know Mm-hmm. Um, but there were definitely a lot of bits in between of connective tissue that just I wasn't really fully getting at the time, and it wasn't enough for me to. I think it made it. It didn't make it a seamless reading experience for me, and that was at the time enough for me to to appreciate the book, but not necessarily to love the book enough where i would want to keep it you know i see i see but having read it several times since i do think that it makes more sense to me now um than it it did then and yeah and having read it the most recent time right now and uh you know for this episode like even having that 10 extra pages does do more to make it a, a more seamless reading experience. Mm-hmm. Um, like you, you asked me when I told you that I bought the deluxe hardcover, uh, what what did the ten extra pages add? And I told you that um, the the ten pages that they added after the series came out, they they were kind of put in as um, they were they were pages that were put into basically flush out some of the human characters uh in the story as opposed to just having them just be cannon fodder for the animals or you know uh emotional cannon fodder for the animals like they there's a little more put in there but it wasn't explicit either right it wasn't like the extra 10 pages were you know roseanne uh monologuing on how much she loves animals and why it is wrong for the military <laughs> to use animals. How dare they? You know, like I don't know what kind of voice you were imitating there, but that was amusing. <laughs> Thanks. But you know, in 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 pretty classic Frank Quietly fashion, the pages that they added, I think they provide context without having to explicitly say anything to you, the reader. You know, it doesn't spoon feed you, but it does provide more context. So, mm-hmm. 
and and it does make it a, a more seamless reading experience so yeah okay Good how about know. yourself what what was do you remember what you thought the first time you you discovered we three or read you know in the solicitations about it or whatever uh well i don't really remember uh what i what i thought when i read the solicitations i think it was pretty much oh it's a grant morrison comic coming out i gotta make sure i buy it when it drops in the store that, that was pretty much it that was the extent of it but mm-hmm. i did buy the issues when it was being serialized so that would have been in 20 2004 i, I don't remember which months of the year but uh it was 2004 i was still in college uh i don't know i think at the time i i just really liked it because i was a big fan of frank quitely's art and uh from what i remember at the time my my roommate wasn't a fan of frank quitely so like i guess in a way me being a fan of his art made me feel like i was a true comics fan or something you know like <laughs> i have actual taste you know like uh i still think you feel that way <laughs> oh i definitely do feel that way but back then i was kind of embarrassed to admit it okay okay <laughs> <laughs> okay okay i i get it now i i see what the difference is <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i i definitely was pretty into it as it was being serialized i think the difference in the reading experience, though, is because the comic itself is only the, the story itself is only three issues long. And even though the issues are a little bit bigger than a normal comic, I think they're I want to say they're like 30, maybe 32 pages each. Uh, technically, from a certain point of view, you could say that the comic as a whole the series as a whole isn't very dense because there aren't a lot of words there's not very much dialogue and what dialogue there is tends to be terse and brief so theoretically you could actually read the comic very quickly so you could buy one of the issues and read an issue in i don't know like two minutes or something if you really just sped read it yeah speed read it absolutely but that's I don't think that's how I read this comic, you know, because because I've definitely had that conversation. And I think I'm pretty sure it was with my old roommate at the time who who was bewildered that a comic like this would be would have so little story, you know, and I say that with with air quotes, so little story because not much happens or because he can read it so quickly and and to me like that's that's just not the right way to read the comic you know and i'm not here to well i guess i am kind of here to tell people how to read in a way <laughs> but but I, i'm just getting at the idea of how yeah you can if you treat your comics or really any kind of entertainment medium or any kind of storytelling medium if you just treat that thing as a plot delivery device then yeah i can understand why all you care about is how long it takes you to get to the end because i guess getting to the end is almost a race if that's how you treat stories but to me there's just so much more to the storytelling experience because whether you're 
uh, I guess it's primarily when you're reading something, whether it's a comic or even prose, sometimes slowing down and taking your time through it can really unpack the work of art and help you appreciate it on a deeper level. Because looking at We Three at that first issue, there's a lot of wordless pages. Like mm. a, a very significant chunk of this is wordless. And the pages that do have words, well, there aren't that many words on those pages. But when you flip through it, there's this entire six-page sequence where all six pages have uh, 18 panels, you know? And they're all wordless panels where you're just looking at various perspectives from different security cams in a building. And yeah, you could blast through that um, and get through it in, in a matter of seconds before you uh, get to a page that has words. And you still you can still get the gist of the whole story. You, you know, you're not necessarily missing anything because all you're really seeing over those six pages is people moving around in the building and then the animals breaking out and causing havoc. But there's just so much more to it if you take your time through those panels and stop to look and think about what you're reading. Even though they don't have words, you can still enjoy the the pacing and appreciate the craftsmanship and the mood that it all generates. Like to me, that's such a an integral part of the entire We Three experience. I can't read this comic in, you know, I mean, technically I could read this comic in five or 10 minutes, you know, like the whole three issue series if I really wanted to. But the reason why it takes me closer to like half an hour or whatever is because I'm taking the time to let my mind, my eyes linger on the density of the panels and the storytelling that's inherent in the artwork so yeah so to me that that's the thing that has always stood out like even more than the actual plot or the story i think i just had such an appreciation for quietly's art and the stuff that he draws and the way he draws it that i i constantly just revisited the comic uh when all three issues came out it was something that i would reread uh and eventually I found a cheap copy of the paperback, so I just bought that. And I think I gave my issues away, but now I kind of wish that I had kept them just to keep them, but whatever. I don't have the deluxe hardcover, so I, I don't really know. I'm not familiar with the new material or any extras that are in it because the paperback edition is it's completely bare bones. It doesn't have any extras. All it has is the covers, and that's pretty much it. It's still a story that... Even after all these years, maybe I don't necessarily reread it from start to finish all the time, but it's definitely a, a comic that I pull off the shelf on a regular basis just to look at the art and enjoy, yeah, just the visuals of it and the craftsmanship of it. Mm. It's just been with me all these years. Yeah, I love it a lot. Yeah. And the fact that, again, the fact that it doesn't necessarily make it on the actual list of top 25 doesn't diminish it it's still a really great book it just so happens that it was a very tough list you know and yeah sometimes you know the stuff that we do love there's just so much to choose from not everything makes it so mm -hmm. here we are mm -hmm. <clears throat> so speaking of our list the criteria that we set forth for ourselves 
that we also used for our Marvel Top 25 and we're using for our DC list. We have four criteria that we use to regard all of the books on the list. And those criteria are craft, originality, impact, and withstanding the test of time. And we'll get deeper into those as we discuss each element. But uh, for now, uh, I guess it's fair to say we'll be going into full spoiler mode. So for those of you who haven't read We 3 yet, go check it out. It's awesome. Uh, but if if you uh, don't care about spoilers, you know, you can still listen to us, obviously. Uh, we want that listen. <laughs> Keep on playing. <laughs> Even if you put us on mute, just give us a play. <laughs> Even if you're down to 2% on your battery, you better use that 2% to listen to us. Yes. We'll break that's, into your house. That's absolutely the best use of your, your phone battery. <laughs> you might be trapped in the bottom of a well hoping that someone will save you that's not gonna happen i'm letting you know that right now that that two percent's not gonna get someone to save you just listen to us yeah at least if you listen to our voices you'll die in peace or not but at least if you listen to us we'll get the listen <laughs> and that's what i care about <laughs> okay let's uh go ahead and dive into the book now examining it from the various criteria that we've just stated. So the first thing is the craft of the book. And by craft, we're just asking if if the comic is technically sound, is it well-written, well-illustrated? Did the creators demonstrate mastery of the language and form of comics? Where does We 3 stand in terms of its craftsmanship? We we talked a lot about this in our in in the intro to this episode, so I won't spend too much time, uh, you know, just reiterating. But I will say that I'm I'm like looking at my deluxe hardcover and I'm looking at the I, I just borrowed it off Hoopla right now, so I'm looking at the original version on my tablet while I'm speaking to you. And I will say like. I do think Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely are a pretty magnificent duo uh, in in the sense that we talked about how Frank Quitely is someone who is just technically a very proficient and good artist, so much so to the point where he has the ability to draw things that aren't necessarily instinctually aesthetically pleasing but the complexity of what he's drawing and the depth of what he's drawing, like all all of this skill that goes into it shines out if you really know what you're looking at. And I think if you think about Grant Morrison as a writer, that I think that applies to him as well because he's, mm-hmm. he's definitely not a guy who writes a story that spoon-feeds you all of the information. He makes you work for it and... I'd say that that first reading of We Three that I read all those years ago, I, I'd say that he's guilty of that as well. Where there's a lot of he he thinks in a way that is purely comics. Like it really feels like he knows co- the 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 storytelling 
motion of comics in his brain inside and out so much so to the point where he knows what information to leave out because he does it on purpose to to most effectively tell that story to you right Mm -hmm. so i think to a lot of people when you're looking at it when you're reading his comics it it might not necessarily flow the way that you expect stories to flow but i think that's also the point of what he's doing is that he doesn't want to give you the satisfaction of, you know, A, B, C, and and the end, right? Because yeah, because on the face of it, the story that he's telling is very much, again, like if you were just to give a one sentence synopsis, it's it's cyborg animals on the run, just trying to find a home. Cyborg animals on the run from the government and just trying to find peace and a home. That's it, right? So on the face of it, it should be a really simple story. And maybe it's the type of story where you could almost tell yourself anyone can write that story, right? But Grant Morrison does it in a way that is uniquely signature Grant Morrison, where he does things with the pacing that are a little jarring, where he leaves out bits of information that forces you as a comic book reader to work a little harder in order to discern the story for yourself and if you take a step back and look at that comic from that perspective you you'd be i i'd like to think that you'd be able to appreciate like how much thought goes into a comic that purposefully presents itself in a way to make you the reader work that much harder you Mm -hmm. know yeah that makes any sense yeah and like you're like you were saying maybe Maybe anybody could have come up with this idea, but it's it's all the execution, right? Like the execution is yeah, that's the thing really that matters. makes it different. That's mm-hmm. the thing that makes it special, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure any any pothead on the street, if you just said, <laughs> hey, any cokehead or whatever, if you were just like, hey, I want you to write me a story about you know animals on cyborg animals on the run from the government, write me that story, like. I'm pretty sure they'll be able to do some version of that, right? It, it almost sounds too simple, uh-huh, but uh-huh. I, I can guarantee that not all versions of that are equal. And, and Grant Morrison shows us that not all versions of that are equal, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can yeah, you think I, of any other stories that are about cyborg animals? <sighs> Cujo, well, no, not Cujo. Cujo was just a psychopathic dog. Uh, what was that? No, there was that one movie that came out. Uh, I want to say like in the nineties. Uh, that was about. Uh, it was about a cyborg or android dog that was a killer. It it, it was kind of in the that era of like slasher horror movies, uh, but I I don't think it ever really became popular. Um, the guy mm-hmm. that played Ridley was in the movie. Ridley okay. from Aliens. I um, see. I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tell me what you think about it and uh, about the technicals of, of the art and the storytelling. I will look this movie up. <laughs> sure. I think I want to start by talking about the artwork since you handled uh, Morrison's writing. But... Like I was saying earlier, I just think Frank Quitely's artwork in this comic is it's genuinely groundbreaking. Like very extremely 
clever storytelling from a visual perspective. By the time this comic came out in 2004, yeah, I'd, I would have considered myself a comic book veteran. You know, I'd read a ton of comics at that point, a bunch of a bunch of superhero comics, a smattering of indie and alternative comics, and some manga. So I felt like I had grown very familiar with comics as a medium at that point, uh, you know, since reading comics as a kid in the 90s. But when I read We Three, when I picked up issue one of We Three, I felt like I was seeing things in that comic that I had never seen before in any other comic. And Frank Quitely, throughout not just the first issue, but all three issues, he uses a variety of tricks in his artwork to convey the spe- the feeling of speed, the feeling of movement, the feeling of chaos, inventive layouts, negative space, density of panels, decisive gutter placement. Those are just some of the tools that Quitely uses to make Lee 3 an immaculately paced action comic. And I, I do think in terms of genre, I would probably consider We Three a science fiction action story. And as an action comic, I think you really do need somebody who is capable of the spectacle. And he manages that spectacle. But the other thing I think is important in a smart action comic is the buildup to the spectacle because it, it really does no good if the artist is only good at drawing spectacle because if everything looks like spectacle then nothing is spectacular mm. so the the fact that he's able to draw all of these quiet moments uh he's able to draw people with really convincing body language and acting and then have things explode in a fury of action and violence that is some impressive stuff. But the other impressive thing, not just from uh, a pure draftsmanship perspective, but in terms of constructing a page of comics, he really comes up with inventive layouts. And uh, I mentioned earlier, there was that span of six pages in the first issue that, and each page has 18 panels most of the panels are wordless some of them have words but they're all just essentially uh different cameras in the government building and you're just seeing people go about their business in the building and as time progresses eventually the animals break out and then you just see the chaos ensue like something like that it's it's so dense but I think it's also something that is so different, you know, like it, you don't often see someone do that many wordless panels for so many pages, but for him to decide to do it like that, I'm not really sure what the script said. I don't know if Morrison laid out exactly what he wanted to see in each panel of those six pages. But uh, if I were to guess, I would guess that Frank Quitely had some say in this sequence. I'm guessing that he probably had a good idea of how he wanted to pace things and lay them out so that uh, 
it would tell a story, even though you're you're essentially seeing all these panels that that aren't um, taking place in this exact same room or in the same uh, part of the building. And you're looking at all these disparate uh, hallways and rooms. There's still a story that's progressing, and I think that's what makes these pages fairly dense is because even though there aren't very many words you still kind of have to think about it you have to slow down and examine what you're looking at to figure out what's happening here and even though it's pretty obvious when you think about it it's it's really just the animals escaping being able to look at every frame like that it it slows things down so that by the time you turn to the spread the two-page spread where they're just jumping out it's pretty majestic stuff. Like there's something incredible about the mood that a scene like that evokes. It's um, just really impressive to look at. And I think it sets up the, I guess kind of the, it makes the animals look and feel noble in a way, you know, like they, they finally yeah. made it through and they're, they're breaking out. And this is kind of them at their high point in the story, because after, after this, once everybody starts chasing them, it, it just kind of goes downhill from there. Yeah. There's that sense of freedom, the way that they just leap out of that office mm-hmm. or that uh, that facility, right? And yeah. It, it's, it's a really brief scene from what I remember, but you just see them leaping into the air, and it's just, I don't know, it just feels so freeing just to watch yeah. them. It's, yeah, it's, it's that it's one page. stuff. Yeah, and... It's it's pretty moving. It's pretty moving. Like you said, it is evocative. It is for for the buildup of all those previous panels and all these like little micro panels to lead up to this one two page spread of them just leaping out into the night sky. What's more Mm -hmm. free than that for like a wild animal, right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Another Uh, big sequence that uh, affected me a lot when I first read the comic. And something I still think about today when I think about really great moments in comics, but just the opening few pages where it starts off wordless in this, uh, I guess in this gang hideout or not, not a gang, but I guess they're, it's like a, a dictator or something like his, wherever he's staying, uh, his, his base, like he, it starts out with him working out while his, bodyguards are just lounging around in the house drinking and then slowly you get the sense that the animals are creeping in there and then the the uh dictator dude he realizes that something is hunting him in the house and he shoots a bunch of bullets through the door thinking that someone's on the other side out to kill him so he's trying to kill him first and then he he does that and uh he kicks the door he kicks what remains of the door down and he's just confused. And then you, you flip to page six and then you just get this double page spread of a hailstorm of bullets ripping through his body. Yeah. It's crazy. It's, it's pretty crazy. It's super crazy. It's very impactful. And I think uh, whatever Jamie Grant did in terms of the digital inking and coloring here to make it have this sort of 3d effect where the bullets really look like they're flying off the page. He, he does this effect where they he, I guess he 
adds like a blurring kind of thing, a blurring kind of effect to the bullets as they're flying through this dude's body. I just thought that was a really good looking splash, man. Like when I first read it uh, as a as a college student, it was something that I wasn't expecting when I turned the page. And that first time I flipped the page, it it truly did blow me away. Like I was really impressed by it. And to me, this this still feels like a precursor of sorts of it feels like a precursor to what Morrison and Quitely would do in All-Star Superman. Because when you look at the opening pages of All-Star Superman, it starts off with that first page that's that's just four panels and eight words, and then you flip it, and then you get this glorious double-page spread of Superman flying through the sun. And this is almost the same thing, where you get these five pages of tension building up before this explosion of just a uh, in your face violence you know like that's the kind of page flip that it's really hard to do an amazing page flip in comics but they Morrison and Quitely have have done it at least twice in a really amazing fashion yeah like the thing that gets me about that one page that you described where the bullets are coming out at you it's it just makes you wonder, like, how does Frank quietly, like, visualize this in, in his mind, right? Yeah. Like, in order to be able to put that to paper. It's like, we want, if someone told me, hey, I want you to draw, like, one, I would never think to draw it that way to begin with, but... It's a crazy you know, perspective. If, exactly, right? If if they just told you, okay, the, the general gets shot, most of us would think, like, a side view... Or maybe something from the front. Nothing, nothing too creative. Nothing too um, extravagant. But again, I don't know. Like you, I don't know what Grant Morrison's note to Frank Quietly was, and how much of this was Frank Quietly. But if if he just if Grant Morrison did just say, okay, then this guy gets shot, and he just went, you know, however you want to show it, you show it, and for <laughs> Frank Quietly to like look at that and say, okay, what is the most interesting way that this guy get, can get shot? And for him to go, I'm just going to show this guy being turned into mincemeat as the bodies are, as the bullets are just penetrating his body. And we're experiencing it from the guys, from behind the guy. That is just, that's like three-dimensional thinking right there. You know? It really is, man. You don't see that very often. I don't I don't think I've ever seen it before. Yeah. Yeah. It's really impressive. Super impressive. And there's just yeah, there's just tons of really impressive uh storytelling throughout the book. Like in issue two, uh I wanna point out early on in issue two, there's the scene when the the military people are hunting the animals uh and they're in this kind of forest area. And you have a military uh, jeep or armored vehicle like driving through, and you have, and then you see the dog uh, attacking it. And the way that it's drawn, it's it's basically um, like the top half of a two-page spread. So it's got that widescreen element, but inside that spread, there's a bunch of smaller inset panels like maybe i don't know 
18 or 20 panels and they all just detail like different things that are happening in the car. It, it's hard to describe without uh, video. So that, that's one of the drawbacks of doing a podcast of this and discussing uh, this comic. But um, I think it's just so amazing to see how quietly depicts the speed and ferocity of the movement because the main image you do see the dog jumping through the through the jeep like you you see him like jumping at it you see him you see the moment where he breaks through the windshield you see the moment where the dog breaks through the back door of the jeep and you see the moments where he lands uh outside and you know continues on his merry way but in the little inset panels you see all the little moments that uh, are involved in that entire sequence so you see the dog shooting the bullets from his paw armor you see the bullets penetrating a soldier um you see the bullet going through the guy the back of the guy's skull you see the blood splatter you see the helmet fly off you see the driver twist and jerk you see the driver uh you see his foot come off the gas pedal you know you just see all this all these little minor actions but it it gives you this incredible sense of chaos because it's it's all happening so fast and then there's a similar thing in the in the spread uh on the bottom half of that two-page spread where the cat is lurking on top of a tree branch stalking these soldiers and it fires some kind of flechette at at the guy below her and um she she just like slaughters these people like everything that that happens is just so uh fast-paced and chaotic it's <clears throat> kind of a, a wild way to depict things because again i don't think i've ever seen an action comic do it like that you definitely don't see that kind of stuff in big two comics yeah. I don't even think you see him see it that often today, but you definitely didn't see it in 2004. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of interesting to think, like, it, looking at this book in hindsight, I don't know how many people I could say were inspired by this specific book. Like, you know, granted, no one's going to go out there and apropos of nothing and say, yeah, I'm here because of this one particular book, unless, you know, there's an interview or something. But I, I do feel like maybe on a subconscious level, there were a lot of people that were probably inspired by Frank Quietly's art, you know? Yeah, uh, totally. It, it's harder to say, again, it's harder to say with absolute certainty whether that's the case or not. But I do think this book was something that was pretty critically acclaimed and it's hard to deny i i find it hard to imagine that this book didn't have that sort of effect on you know the 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 people creating comics so i maybe i i'm more inclined to believe like again this many years after the publication of this book that your average person didn't doesn't really think about it maybe doesn't have anything to say about it but you know that's that's the 
that's the the drawback of of average people like i said <laughs> of, of how just that's that's the shame of it all i guess is what i'm trying to say you know yeah 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 i i wanted to talk about some of the other things um as as they relate relate to craft now that i'm looking at it mm-hmm. um in terms of the writing one of the things again like so much of the writing and the art goes back to the idea of how deceptively simple this book is and i think the thing that we forget as readers and people who don't write comics is just how hard it is to write something simple right mm-hmm. so Grant Morrison fully took it upon himself to write these animals as animals. And one of the things that he did was, even though they're cyborgs, I I think it could have been very easy to do a version of this story where these animals have a full vocabulary at their disposal, right? But he writes these animals in a way where it's super creative how he uses language it's so limited and it's it's limited enough that it makes you believe that this is the level of technology that we would be at in in, if if something like this were to be created these animals Mm -hmm. wouldn't be able to fully communicate with us in fully functioning sentences they'd only be able to cherry pick a handful of words and reuse those words and in some cases, those words have different meanings depending on context, right? Mm-hmm. And just if you think about just how difficult a task that is as a writer, like yeah. again, that's it's it's pretty mind-boggling, like how much dialogue you how how you're able to write dialogue that captures that simplicity so effectively, so. Yeah, Grant Morrison's definitely got a lot of talent when it comes to um, what he put down, what he wrote in this comic. Yeah, um, really required uh, an economical use of words there. Yeah, and I think that was another thing when I think about it was um, when I read it the first time around, I, I don't think I appreciated how simple their their dialogue was. And I think I just breezed through it when I read it. And, you know, in my mind, I was like, yeah, yeah, I get the general idea. I get that that's kind of how they talk. But when you take the time to actually process what they're saying, like, and and again, this goes hand in hand with Frank Quietly's art, because it's it requires Frank Quietly to capture the things that Grant Morrison isn't saying through the visual experience, right? So there's a lot of conflict between these animals. The dog and the cat don't like each other, and the bunny is kind of kind of a lovable dope. But <laughs> but but you're trying to uh, convey com- you're trying to convey a simplistically complex uh, emotional dynamic between all these animals. Because again, you can very easily just make it about we just want to go home and that's it. Right. But Mm -hmm. there's so much headbutting and rivalry that goes on between that, these animals, but at the same time, they also function as a unit and they rely on each other. And 
yeah, how do you how do you put all that on paper without using paragraphs and paragraphs of words to communicate that? And they mm-hmm. do do it. They do it masterfully. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I yeah, so I, I think that's a total testament to their craft. Um, yeah, in just, some in some ways that uh, the way that he came up with their dialogue, it ends up being he ends up crafting some fairly poetic moments too. Like I, I keep thinking about the one moment when after the the bridge blows up and that train uh, falls into the river, uh, there's a moment where the the dog he you know he he's acknowledged and feels bad that he's done all this other stuff killing people so he thinks that he can still be a good dog by helping a man so you see him go in the water and pull out uh, a person a survivor he drags or at least he thinks it's a survivor he just grabs a man by the collar and drags the man out to uh to the shore of the creek or to the dry land and says says to himself good dog help man and then the cat says, stink, man, gone, because, uh, and you don't see it until later, but then uh, as they move away, uh, you see that the man, he's like torn in half. So the yeah. dog basically just pulled up the upper half of a guy's torso and like his spine is dangling out of his body and you see all his organs, uh, you know, flies are already buzzing there and a seagull's coming in to feed. Yeah. But, um, as the animals, as we three are walking away, um, the dog says, two, come. And then two says, home? One say home. One knows zero, or I guess that means nothing. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, the cat See, that's also... The thing. It requires you to, like, make up yeah. for it, right? <laughs> exactly. And then the cat says, home is? And then the dog says, home is run no more yeah yeah and that's a good line man like that's that's one of those lines i think that's probably the line that stands out the most in the whole comic yeah yeah man and uh, i was looking i was comparing uh the original version of we three with my deluxe version Mm -hmm. and uh i was looking at the pages and there's this one scene uh that isn't in the, the original comic it's two pages that they add towards the end and i think it's a pretty great two pages actually so towards the end of this story uh what we're seeing is that the government decides that we've thrown everything that we've had at these three animals it's time to fight fire with fire so they have one reserve um you know canine cyborg unit essentially that they're going to unleash on the three of them right Mm-hmm. And what ends up happening is uh, it, it's a pretty sad scene in the in the original version because what ends up happening is the bunny, the uh, three, he ends up running out on his own because he's just this trustful, loving dope. And he, <sighs> he, he runs out there and in the comic, what in the original comic, what you see is uh, one and two kind of go after him and one is like basically shouting don't go out there don't go out there and you know he, but he's using his language right uh, like, uh, like you know th- uh, so what he, what ends up happening is he's chasing him and what's he saying uh, he's he's basically like telling him to come back 
and it just jumps to this scene and you just see this giant dog with three in his mouth right yeah but in the deluxe version that bunny gets a two pages to shine oh it, it changes the context of it because instead of him just being an idiot he goes out there and he faces the dog one-on-one and it's a fight between the two and you see him and it makes him look kind of badass like nice yeah yeah it's a really great couple of pages but like so up, up to this point in the story the bunny he he just wants to go home he doesn't really care like about he he he'd be perfectly happy if everything went back to the way it was and he believes that there's a chance that it can go back to the way it was so at one point he gets hit by the by the train in the story and that messes him up super bad and then he gets separated from them and he encounters a hunter in the woods and a boy and the hunter is you know he instinctively freaks out and he ends up shooting three in the head the rabbit mm-hmm. and, and so he's like all kinds of messed up at this point and for him to go out that way it, it's it's kind of rough you know what happens to him but yeah like, yeah he took the, a lot the, of punishment yeah but the two extra pages that that you see him he he's a soldier man this little bunny is a soldier he's standing up to the big dog one-on-one and like he headbutts the guy and then <laughs> the dog's like throwing him around and he's just jumping straight at him and there's this one panel in it where you just see a clo- close-up of his like bloodshot eyes and he's furious you know and yeah i need you to post those panels so i can check them out yeah he he He's basically going in there to save, like, one and two. And it completely changes my reading of that scene. Because, again, the first time I read it, it just felt like, oh, he went out there because he he was just kind of being a trusting dope. And, <laughs> and he got got. But here, he's a hero. And, yeah, you know, Frank... That's good. Frank quietly is, like, just ability to capture all of that just in facial expressions and in like body movement and like just how frantic and panicked one is and just how angry and like noble and heroic three is being in this whole thing. It's yeah. It's just Frank quietly's ability again to, to uh, when, when you think about how much Grant Morrison has to scale back to achieve uh, his goal of, presenting these animals in this way it just means that frank quietly has to compensate for the that storytelling in what we see in the visuals of the comic and that's exactly Mm -hmm. what we get it's the it's a great symbiosis between these two does the deluxe edition have anything like pages from the script or uh, yeah there's there's actually a bunch layouts and things like that yeah there's actually a bunch in the end i didn't really read those uh but he de- definitely has a bunch of pages of character designs. And then I'm looking at uh, this one page here where he's doing um, – he does a breakdown of the of the scene that we described earlier where the guy is just torn up by bullets. Oh. And he has some notes on that. Uh, he has – When you say he, are you referring to Morrison or Quitely? Oh, it's actually both of them. Uh, it's got notes from both of them. Okay. So, yeah, and then uh, there's there's. So did it? Does it say whether uh, Morrison 
described that two-page splash with the bullets in a script, or was that more of a quietly improv? I don't know how explicit it says. It, here's here's a one quote from Frank, uh, one one part uh, that Frank quietly wrote. I drew preliminary roughs for shooting this scene, quote-unquote, shooting this scene from different angles, side on and from behind. In retrospect, I'm glad Grant chose behind. So it feels like, it sounds like he drew it from multiple perspectives, and then he offered it to Grant Morrison, and he said, which one do you want? Which one do you like? And Grant Morrison chose that. See, that's that's, that's a sign of their, like, collaborative spirit right there, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Dude, I'd be curious to know if the extras have any information about the scene from uh, issue issue two. It's the scene where it's a double page spread, but there are these eight panels and the eight panels are, they're basically parallelograms and they almost function as like doorways. And it's the cat jumping through each of these yeah, parallelogram yeah, yeah, yeah. Sha- shaped panels as, he, as she's so- killing the soldiers. He, like, that's he included, another thing. He included the uh, the rough the rough draft of it, or the the not the rough draft, but like the sketch of it. But the there thumbnails? aren't any notes yeah. on it. Oh, okay. Yeah, but they do have notes on the CCTV scene where you know you have all those panels and grids, and uh, you're watching as mm-hmm. through various disparate scenes, you're watching as the animals escape the facility. So they they have some notes on that. There's uh, one page of script notes here. I'm looking at it now. I didn't read it at the time because you know I'm I'm just reading for uh, to get it done. <laughs> but but yeah, I didn't read the the extra notes. But it is something I I do want to check out at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scene with the cat jumping through the panels is another classic scene. Like that's another thing that I've never seen in a comic before, you know? Yeah. It's super creative and inventive. Makes excellent use of the page. Gives you the sense of the cat just being on this whole other level compared to the soldiers, you know? Like, this cat is jumping through time. a murder machine. (laughs) Yeah. Really incredible storytelling there. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so much stuff throughout the whole series where... I think we could just admire how well done it all it all is, you know. Like well, the... here here's something, and it it might it might give you an insight into that that scene. It's Grant Morrison talking about it. He goes, uh, I mean, it, it's it's more Grant Morrison's philosophy, like on the book as a whole, but um. He goes, we chose to treat that page not as a flat 2D surface upon which panels were pasted down flat, but as a virtual 3D space in which panels could be hung and rotated or stacked one on top of the other. According to the scientists, small animals experience time more slowly, and we like the idea of extending the gutters around the panels to suggest the immense amounts of still zen times a cat might pass through between the microseconds of human awareness. Mm. Yeah. That's clever, That's, man. Yeah. See, Grant Morrison, he, uh, he's he got a way with words, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. really clever. Yeah. Yeah, you got to admire it. This, yeah. This comic is exceptionally well-crafted. Yep. Yep. What's the uh, next criteria? 
we have originality. And by that, we're just asking the questions, is this comic creative and imaginative? Does it have something meaningful to say? Yeah, I'd say that on the face of it, we, we mentioned this just a little bit not too long ago. On the face of it, it sounds like a very simple idea. One might even say that it's the kind of an idea even a kid might come up with. It's yeah. not it's not an entirely creative concept, but again, in its execution, you really do see their creative juices flowing. It's their mm-hmm. ability to take uh, an uncomplicated idea and to find ways to make it to give it depth. And I think I think that's what they achieve quite well, like uh, just in in the making of it, but also in just what they're trying to tell. You know, even if you look at this as an action comic, it's a genius man's action comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, totally, yeah. totally. Yeah, it's the yeah, it's the it's the execution that uh makes it come together. And I I do think that even though Maybe we could say, or someone could argue that the themes and ideas of the story are tried and true. I, I would still say that at the very least, We Three tells a meaningful story, which is more than what we can say about a lot of other comics. Yeah. And the reason yeah. why is because I think it provides, it does provide ideas that are worth thinking and talking about, such as the use of emerging technologies and weapons development, mm-hmm. you know, uh those kind of science fiction ideas which really aren't super far off you know like i think even at the time uh controlling like developing some way to control animals was the thing that the military was experimenting on and when you look at what's going on uh today in recent years uh people are even uh closer than ever to realizing the stuff that we see in we three, you know, people have developed ways to essentially remote control really small animals like rats and mice and and things like that. So I remember there were even news reports that they were working on ways to use dolphins to uh, basically, you know, as Marine, like either bomb detection or, uh, Oh you yeah, know, some sort of yeah. delivery device for munitions. I think stuff like that is is uh is going on because they they can train animals to do stuff like that. It's it's kind of comparable maybe to like bomb sniffing dogs. Yeah. But yeah, but I'm talking about like actual like cyborg animals or in integrating like robotic technology into animals to literally yeah. control them. Like that. That's what I was talking about too with the dolphins cuz Pretty sure I remember reading something where they were like putting things on dolphins. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Suffice it to say, I'm I'm pretty sure if the military could find a way to weaponize an animal, they would. Yeah. Regardless of uh, you know, what kind of animal it was. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I the story also has some general themes about, I guess you could say man's corrupting influence on the natural world specifically yeah. uh, you know other creatures animals and you know there's also the idea of the purity of these creatures as well 
Yeah. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of those kinds of military related sort of themes yeah. injected into the story that at the very least are something worth discussing. Yeah, I wanted to talk on that idea a little bit that you just mentioned where um where we talked about uh, uh you know just the fact that these are animals and you know how man has this capacity to corrupt everything around them i do think that that was a theme that i hadn't really thought about too much in my prior readings of this book but there were things about it about this particular book that uh, or or this my particular reading of it this time around that i don't know for for whatever reason it, it was stuff that i guess i hadn't thought about before it jumped out at me now more than it has in the past but um yeah there were things in the way that grant morrison wrote this comic where he really doesn't hold back on on the fact that it's a savage world that these animals live in mm-hmm. um like i remember thinking about it after i read it this time around where uh, again there there's this very i think the impulse for most people who write a story like this would be well these animals have to be pure and above reproach and they have to be like really really lovable because you can't have animals that kill people or are the are responsible for the deaths of like hundreds of people and and like still put them in a position where you root for them right so but grant morrison I don't know if he I, I'd say if he leaned into that, but he, he didn't try to hide that. He didn't take the safe route out when he told the story. Yeah, he doesn't anthropomorphize the animals. There's they still act exactly like how animals would act. Exactly. Like he they want to go home and that's something that I, I do think that that's something that shaves off the the rough edges on them because you know, they're still pets and you know being someone who who has a pet now that's that's something that resonates with me the idea of like oh you know you're at the end of the day your pets just want to be loved and they just want to be taken care of like in a in another world like would these animals want to be in this position of course not no of course they wouldn't right but you have uh, just made me imagine pepper wearing a suit of cyborg armor armed with ground air <laughs> missiles and flechette launchers and i'm just imagining her going on a rampage I would love her even more. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, right? So, like, again, it's it's the humans' influence on these animals that put them in a position where they are murdering all these people. Like, maybe there's an interpretation of it where you can tell yourself, oh, it's okay because they're killing terrorists at the beginning. But there's parts of the stories where you know that train accident happens and like you said the 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 dog ends up dragging that human out of uh the the creek uh you know out of the the mm-hmm. the, the train de- debris and <laughs> and and you know the guys just basically mush you know and this this is a person who i i assume he has family <laughs> that he was loved by someone you know, yeah, he had nothing just to a, do with the military. He was exactly. that's a literal innocent person there. 
Yeah, and if those animals weren't there on that train, you know, granted, maybe they didn't know what they were doing, but if they weren't there, that wouldn't have happened, right? Yeah, and or then, that uh, guy who was going hunting with his son. Yeah. They ended he, up killing him. He might have fired first, but it, it's not too far out of the outside the realm of possibility to imagine someone encountering one of these creatures out in the wild and being rightfully scared of it right yeah and, yeah and he shoots three in the head and what do they do they like respond they kill him you know they mm -hmm. like and thinking about it more after i read that scene there's a chance they they killed oh no they didn't kill the kid they said the kid was found like uh yeah. wandering uh, uh on his own but still yeah. that so that's his dad as an orphan yeah that's his dad i, I guess that's the the b prize <laughs> <laughs> that's a good consolation you didn't get killed but <laughs> you know no dad for you uh but yeah it, it's just these animals they're not in a position it, it's hard to look at them and even they don't though i think like bad, people they don't think like exactly they don't they don't think like people they don't necessarily like fully comprehend mortality but even in that scene after one kills the hunter there there is a brief scene after that where he he regrets what he did he calls he, himself bad dog yeah he he's sad about it but i don't know that's that's the thing that makes it so i guess that's the thing that makes it that I'd have to give it extra points for in terms of originality is just its ability to capture the essence of what real animal cyborgs would be like in those situations. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure most people wouldn't give it as much thought as that. But we like thinking about things other people don't bother with. So yeah, that's, I'm but fine that's, with that. But that's, but that's, I mean, my point being was that's, that's a sign of, uh, original storytelling that's a sign of good storytelling on their part that's yeah that's why exactly. that's why it's more than just homeward bound meets terminator 2 you know exactly exactly the, that's that's the thing that gives it its originality is the yeah that the kind of writing and look exactly exactly that kind of writing transforms these animals from just being mere animals into being the characters that we follow in the story you know like they're actual exactly. characters because now they have there's layers to them that we have to ponder and consider yeah. and yeah they're animals easily, but they have agency exactly we could easily read this story and not bother thinking about that but where's the fun in that yeah the, the fact that yeah. we do have this extra meat to it 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 adds quite a bit to the experience of the comic yeah yeah and i would actually encourage people to read like i would encourage people to read that to read the comic with that in mind because it gives you something again like i've i've read this several times in the past and not thinking about these things just blowing through it you 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 can very easily like glaze gloss over over those details and yeah you know when you're done with it you're just like okay it's a story about animals just trying to get home it was sad but what else? Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's the artwork too, man. The artwork is just what really conveys that emotion. And 
really sells us in into believing in their world and the technology involved and yeah i mean i've just been gushing about quite art this whole time but that that's probably the thing that still stands out so much to me is just that he's he's truly doing original artwork here that you know in, in the sense that he's doing things that we'd never really seen before like yeah. I, I don't think like all the various examples that we've mentioned so far like a lot of those things aren't common things um i can't remember ever seeing them from any other artists up to that point in 2004 so the fact that he was doing them i, I feel like serious comic book artists who have risen up and and become active in the industry in these past 18 years or so like they're probably like you know they're probably they've probably been influenced by his work you know this is something that i think artists probably should study if they haven't already studied it you know like anybody who's really serious about uh comic book art especially you know if, if they're into like genre comics or mainstream superhero comics or whatever action-oriented comics like this is the text that needs to be studied in order to see how somebody who's singularly talented was able to depict movement on the page or depict the perception of time you know all these things that we've just gone on about like it's that's what's really original in the yeah. artwork yeah and, you know, we talked about it a little earlier about stories where, you know, other stories where uh, you have pets that were augmented or whatever. So the movie that I was talking about was called Man's Best Friend. It's about like a genetically modified Rottweiler. <laughs> and um, there's another one. I, I like came across a bunch of them. And this one was called AXL. I, I don't know what it stands for, but this was something that was made in 2018. So it's an idea that people keep going back to. So uh -huh. just you know, just to like bring home the fact that the the idea of like cyborg animals or augmented animals isn't necessarily the most original idea on its own, but you know, I'm pretty sure none of these movies ever made it into, like, the movie hall of fame or anything. They were just <laughs> cash grabs. And V3 is substantially different from any of those. And, and So were any yeah. of those movies movies that you remembered or even watched? So that's the thing. So Man's Best Friend was the one that I do remember watching as a kid. And it was Bishop, not Ridley, that was in the movie. Uh, what's his name? Lance Hendrickson was oh, the star okay. of that movie. Okay. Yeah. So I do remember watching that one as a kid, and I think it was one of those movies where even as a kid I thought it was kind of dumb. Like, I, I think <laughs> at the time I saw the trailer and I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. It's a robot dog. And, you know, it kills people. Awesome. And then I watched it and I was just like, that was weak. <laughs> you know? It was, like, too simple even for me, even then. So. Um, Actually, now that you mention it, I have a question for you. You know how sometimes... You've mentioned that comics that get too gory and violent make you feel a little sick to your stomach. Yeah. So did this comic have that effect on you? Oh. Uh, well, okay. Let me clarify. It's. 
I don't think that there are things that make me feel sick to the stomach in 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 terms of like the gore, because you know I've watched stuff like Saw and I was like okay whatever right like in or Texas Chainsaw Massacre so like the gore I don't think it's that I don't think it's experiencing the gore on that level that makes me feel uneasy I think okay. on it's the secondary level of it where I think subconsciously I'm a I'm affected by the idea that this gore is happening and I'm consuming it as entertainment like I think there's a part of me that's disturbed by the idea that I'm like not necessarily enjoying it but I'm getting entertainment out of it right uh-huh. that's the thing okay. that bothers me I think okay right okay so so yeah I, I think about it and um I guess I guess that's that's the line in the sand between like what I consider I am in like a serial killer or something like that right where you know they imbibe in the gratuitous violence because there's a fascination and a release that they get from experiencing <laughs> these things whereas I'm always consciously aware that I I should probably feel like there's something wrong with this like I don't ever want to be in a position where I'm getting too much entertainment value out of this you know is that why you haven't wanted is that why you've shied away from something like Red Room by Ed Piscor I think so I think it's I think it uh what's the word I think it uh uh it's too exploitative I guess so like it takes too it has too much fun with it is is the thing it's not the gore itself that bothers me like I can experience that but I think it just yeah it just has too much fun with it and even the way that Ed Piscor talks about it when he talks about it on his YouTube channel like he he's kind of gleeful about it and I'm just like I don't know if I feel like that's the right response to have you know (laughs) interesting yeah i know it's it's it might be more multifaceted than i had of an answer than i had intended to come up with but after thinking about it for for a long while after discussing it with you i I really do think that's what it is because again i'm not necessarily bothered by gore i've I can sit through it and I'm not squeamish or anything, but I don't, I think I don't like sitting there and in the back of my mind thinking, yeah, this is kind of fun. (laughs) Or like, I don't want to be that person that like gets entertainment value from it. It just feels that that's what bothers me. That's what feels creepy. (laughs) I see. I see. Yeah. That's, um, really enlightening insight into your mind and personality so i guess now's the time to acknowledge our sponsor for this segment coffee meets bagel (laughs) to learn insight (laughs) into albert's personality Uh, oh man that's too funny i i do want to talk about i don't know where i would put this in so i'm just going to talk about it here Mm-hmm. Um, so like I said, the the deluxe version does have like 10 extra pages, as I mentioned. And l- looking at it now, uh, after I just 
finished a few minutes ago uh, flipping through the the web version of the original version and comparing it to the deluxe version. Um, it really is a, a, a more seamless reading experience if you read the deluxe version. I don't know if you're uh, the kind of purist who, who wants it to be that tough, but I do think the deluxe version does make it e an easier read. And maybe that's why what do this you mean time it makes around it that tough. Huh? What do you mean it's tough? Like, I wonder if if you want the challenge, if you want the reading experience to be challenging so that you can have that badge of honor because <laughs> this is the way that it was meant to be. And, you know, I earned it because I worked that hard for it. You uh, know? Well, I mean, to be honest, I, I didn't think that the original version of the comic was challenging. Like well, I don't, not, I know, I didn't feel like I was yeah. missing any crucial bit of story. Yeah. So yeah, to to me, it still feels complete as a reading experience. I don't, I don't feel like there's any any gap of story or any missing information that yeah. would enhance the my experience. Yeah. Of course, I'm I'm definitely curious about those ten extra pages, and if if I came across a cheap copy of the hardcover, I'd definitely want to buy that for myself. Well, here's the thing. So that that's what I was getting to. Was so I'm like looking at. There's this scene at the end, right, where the where the remaining two uh, we three uh, unit they're getting away and they're hiding out in this house, right? And I yeah. was comparing this to what was in the original version. In the original version, you see the animals hiding out in this building and they're crawling downstairs and one bits of his armor are falling apart and he's talking about it. He's saying broken is leg coat, bad coat, coat coat is coat is coat is coat not bandit and the and two is just saying stink men be here soon and mm -hmm. then there's a close-up on on one on bandit's face as he has a moment of realization and he goes is coat not we and in yeah. the original version it just jumps to this page where all the soldiers are coming into the building where the animals hold up they come downstairs and then what you what you realize is there's a there's a there's a bomb there. They the 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 animals have set a, a self destruct sequence essentially, mm -hmm. and that's it. There's an explosion and all the soldiers are dead, right? Yep. But in the in the deluxe version, there's two extra pages there, and it's it's reading that the first time. I will say like you're right. It's not. It's not a complex read. Like I understood what was going on, but I do think that those that that first time I read it, maybe there were things that I wanted to see, as opposed to just the quick jump cut. And what you see here is the actual like what happens in the moments between Bandit's realization that they're tracking us through the suits. It's the suits that they're after. And the soldiers coming downstairs and the bomb going off. So the two extra pages that they give you is after Bandit says, is coat not we? It's a couple of, it's a lot of extra panels of Bandit basically explaining to the cat, not we, too. And it's just him like chewing up the armor and then the cat, you know, um, resisting him because the cat doesn't get it. And then mm -hmm. it shows them 
like fighting with each other but also kind of communicating with each other like it's one trying to communicate to two hey this is it's it's the suits that they're tracking it's not us you know and Mm -hmm. it's a pretty cool couple of pages that they're that they drew out um it's to the point where eventually two uh one is just like smashing two around against the wall just to tear the armor off him and that's the end of the scene and then and then it resumes with the soldiers coming downstairs only to find it and maybe that extra couple of pages makes it a you know for some people that's that's something that they don't need but i do feel like i i wanted Maybe there was a part of me subconsciously that did want to see that. And it's nice to have the deleted scenes exactly, inserted exactly. into the final cut. Exactly. And now that I've read the the version with the final cut, um, I was like, I do, I think I do like that version better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And and the thing is, now that I'm uh, talking to you about it, like I don't think I even read my copy of the deluxe version until this episode. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was looking at it at, at the extra scenes, and I was like, I don't, I don't recognize these at all. So, there we go. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You, you're gonna have to post some of those panels, cause or pages, cause I, I'm pretty curious about them. Yeah, man. Yeah. I. Not to, I really uh, hope they just end up vote, republishing but... <laughs> another copy or another printing of this deluxe edition, cause it's not easy to find anymore. I, I did check it. I want to say it's on eBay. Well, okay, I checked Amazon. I found the German version of it. You can buy the German version of it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I did study German in school, but I don't think I want to spend that much money on a German <laughs> copy of it. Yeah. Want to jump to the next uh, criteria? Sure. So the next criteria, our third out of four, is impact. And by that, we're asking, what sort of lasting influence did the comic have? Did it yeah. leave a mark within the DC universe, on the industry, or on pop culture? Do fans remember it with affection? Yeah. Yeah. I want to say that in critical circles, this was something that got a lot of acclaim. Like, I'm even looking at the dust jacket right now, and there were definitely a lot of, um, you know websites and you know review pages that uh had good things to say about it and there was even a period of time where this almost got made into a movie um but again like in terms of your average person i don't know that your average person really even thinks about this comic anymore right Mm -hmm. like i granted I, i don't i don't necessarily interact with your average comic book fan but um, we only interact with above average comic book fans there we go there we go (laughs) (laughs) but you even showed me a bunch of uh uh reviews today from people who who just dunking on this comic uh, just uh, just viciously yeah i feel like anytime we do one of these episodes where we talk about a work that we really appreciate just for fun, I, I generally go to Amazon and I look at the one and two star user reviews just to see what the dregs of society have to say. Yeah. 
Drew, Drew's kind of a sadist that way. <laughs> <laughs> he, he enjoys putting himself through that. He wants to be mad, but but not have anywhere to direct that anger towards except this podcast. <laughs> you know, I don't I don't drink coffee or energy drinks. Whenever I feel tired or sluggish during the day, I just go on Twitter and I look at what people are saying about any given topic. So it's kind uh, of the, the same thing with Kermit, looking at what people Steph are saying on Amazon. Uh, that's too funny, man. That's you just gotta funny. wake up. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know. Um, part of me thinks that if if you view impact as like people in the creative sphere who who got value from this and internalized whatever they learned and applied it to whatever their works are, um, that's that's the kind of impact that's just not quantifiable. Right? Is that the right one? Yeah, I, I'd say yeah. so. It's not quantifiable, uh-huh. right? Because unless you specifically ask uh, whoever's hot right now, were you inspired by We Three? Like, I, I, I wouldn't know for sure. Like, I, I don't think I've even seen anything off the top of my head recently where I can say, oh yeah, you could totally tell that this person was totally inspired by We Three when they wrote this or whatever. Um, I feel like the one artist I can think of where when I look at his work, I immediately think, oh, this dude must have been influenced by Frank Quitely. I think the artist I think of is Chris Burnham. Well, I, yeah, I guess there are a few. Like Raphael Grandpa is another one, I think. I think I feel, that's his name. Um, I don't know. I've never, I haven't really made that association between Grandpa and, and uh, Quitely, but... I, I I think besides Chris Burnham, the other guy I would think of is Ramon Villalobos. I feel like their Burnham and Villalobos both. I feel like both of their styles are kind of comparable or similar to Frank Quitely. That's what I. Yeah, those those are just two artists that I think of. I I don't know actually for sure if they were influenced by him. Yeah, you know that's something you would have to ask them. But yeah. just from an outsider's perspective, when I look at their <clears throat> art, I do see some Frank Quitely in their line. Well, I'm looking at, you know, not to be contentious, but I am looking at some of Raphael Grandpa's art, and I, I do think he was who I was thinking of. Like, when you do look at his work, I, I do think he sort of captures the same sort of texture that uh, Quitely applies to to his people you know Mm -hmm. but yeah anyways well yeah but again like if we're talking specifically if we're talking about frank quietly that's one thing right but uh you know uh, in regards to we three itself specifically um even then I, i think that the innovative tricks that he used in we three i feel like those things will be influential on artists, you know, even in the past, like, t- 10 years or 15 years and moving forward as well. But, again, it just, like you were saying, it's it's not easy to quantify that because we'd have to take a survey of every artist to see, yeah, exactly. you know, if this actually was an influence. But I, f- I do think that it, maybe it's more of just a 
a gut feeling because I, I don't have any real uh, sources or evidence that I can point to to solidify this. But I, I, I feel pretty confident that serious comic book artists recognize the artistry of we three and you know yeah look to it yeah. as something that could inspire them i don't i don't doubt that that's the case but i think in terms of just overall impact i like i think i rated the impact on this pretty low because it's it's hard like i said one it's hard to quantify whether like how many artists were actually inspired by it. And it's also hard for me to say that I, I see the influence in like what's happening in comics as a whole. Like there are definitely people that you mentioned who, who, who follow in the quietly school of style. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, like, I don't know. It, it's imprint seems to be pretty limited. And maybe that's just my 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 reading of uh, the pulse of of comics. So yeah, I I generally don't uh, interact with news sites or whatever. So I, I I could be absolutely wrong there. But but yeah, uh, for me personally, that's why I, I I couldn't give it as high a mark in terms of impact as uh, as I would have for any of the other uh criteria yeah i give it a low mark for impact also for for those same reasons yeah i, th I think i gave it one point more than you did just because uh frank quietly did win an eisner for his work on this comic yeah so maybe that counts for a little bit no but, that, that does that does but yeah it it is the the low score that it got an impact from both of us is ultimately what prevented it from making our final top 25 list yeah but you know to me impact is is nice but it doesn't it's really not everything. yeah it doesn't affect the quality of the work and i don't yeah. love the comic any less because of that yeah that's just one of those criteria that we had set forth so we just stuck with it yeah yeah it's it's not something that we can ignore either but it mm -hmm. is what it is yeah mm -hmm. ready to and move the, on yeah the final criteria is withstand the test of time and by that we're asking is the comic something that holds up today outside of the context of its original publication? Is it something we could read over and over again in the future? Yeah. Well, I think my answer is pretty clear. Having read it, having bought this book on three <laughs> different occasions, <laughs> uh, that and having my appreciation for it grow over time that, um, not only does it withstand the test of time, it has aged better over time. So, um, yeah, that's that's where I stand on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you, man. I, I think I think with the passage of time, as time continues to inevitably march on, we three will only increase in stature as the technological developments in reality become more and more like the science fiction depicted in the comic 
Yeah. You know, like what we were saying earlier about how scientists are already, they have been experimenting with animals and developing ways to control them. And technically they have created cyborg animals. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's only a matter of time before someone the decides killed, to use them the as that killed, weapons. Oh, sorry. Yeah. What the dogs saying? that killed Osama bin Laden, they were augmented. <laughs> they had those uh, enhanced they had teeth or cameras, something. They had cameras, they had teeth, and like they even had earpieces where people were speaking commands into their earpieces uh, when yeah. they were, uh, you know, moving through Osama bin Laden's facility. So. Yeah, I mean, that's again, pretty I, impressive. I, it, it's I th I think there's still a distinction between putting equipment on top of an animal versus like literally creating a cyborg by inserting yeah you know yeah. circuitry into their mind into their brain so that you can like create certain reactions and and control them that way yeah so yeah I, th I think there's a distinction to be made there but uh. Because we've already we already know that people use animals in warfare. It's only a matter of time before they decide to make uh, augmented animals even yeah. more effective at killing people and stuff. Well, have you seen? We we might actually even forego all that if I had to be if I had to throw my two cents in. Because have you seen like the the drones that they've been building? They have that one drone that's that's basically built like a dog. So it functions and moves uh, in a way that a dog would move. It's a four-legged drone. Uh, it's kind of crazy looking. It just, it's able to um, navigate like rough terrain in the way that an animal would, mm -hmm. maybe even better. Um, there's even also that robot, that one robot that's built like a human and They've designed it so that it can navigate an obstacle course, and it does like backflips and stuff and jumps. It's it's pretty eerie how it moves. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess if you think about it, drones aren't too far off from they're not the kind of stuff that we read about in We Three. It, it's like <clears throat> you know, remote ways of killing people. Even when you think about. Yeah when this comic was written at that time in the early 2000s that was kind of when uh, drone warfare was taking off i wonder if if that was some kind of influence on morrison and quietly as they were developing the, the story yeah 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 absolutely you got anything else no i don't think i have any other things to say about we three that we haven't already said what about you any final thoughts i guess the one thing that i would mention is one of the main differences for me personally between the last couple of times i read it and reading it this time is the fact that i do have a dog now and you know i don't know it just has a way of uh affecting you uh in terms of just stories uh, about pets and animals and there was yeah there there's something about the idea of these pets just wanting to exist in a world where they don't have to be killing machines and where they can just you know be free to be themselves and uh you know where they can just be loved and appreciated that's that's 
that was something that hit home with me. And I, I will say that I don't think Pepper is anywhere near as uh, noble or as loyal as 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 one is, as Bandit is. <laughs> like, I don't think if I was ever to be accosted by a wild animal or something, I don't think Pepper would try to save me. <laughs> her her affection for me is pretty one-sided. Uh, like, you know, she's, she's aware of what she needs from me and uh, what my presence means. And, uh, but she, I, I'm pretty sure she's also aware of her limitations and what she can and can't do. <laughs> <laughs> There have been times where I've been walking on the street with Pepper and, you know, there's like something that could potentially be a threat. And she doesn't walk in front of me as a barrier between me and this threat. She'll actively walk on the other side of me, placing herself behind, placing me as a barrier between her and whatever this thing is she's afraid of. (laughs) So... It just means so, that she trusts you to protect her, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> you are the one that she depends on, and she's come to know that she can depend on you to protect her. Either that, or if push came to shove, she would allow me to get mauled by something if it meant that <laughs> that it meant that she could save herself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not resentful towards her about it. She, like, I still love her, but still, it's it's a funny thought that I have. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that I, I just wanted to put that in there as, you know, just uh, something that may have changed my opinion of the book mm-hmm. uh, since my initial reading of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Makes sense. Actually, I, I do have one more question that I just thought of. Sure. But my question is, would you give We Three to somebody who was interested in reading comics and they just wanted to read, you know, something so. like an introduction so. to comics? Absolutely. Would? Yeah. It's, it's one, it's self-contained. And that's, that's for me personally, that's kind of on the top of my um, list of considerations when I'm thinking about what to recommend or to give to someone. Yeah. And although it might be, you know, quote unquote, a little harder to read than your average comic, I do think that it's far more rewarding and, and yeah. And and that's the value in it of itself. Like I, I would recommend it to someone, although I'll also admit that, if I gave it to someone or or recommended that they read it, I would probably give a lot of extra information to that person. In if anything, to guide them towards uh, the most rewarding reading experience that they can have. What would you, you know? give the person? Just context, just information, just my opinion on it. Maybe not necessarily without giving them an entire spoiler of the story, but just, you know, different ideas and themes that are being explored or just giving examples of just how 
like we did for this episode, just uh, examples of how creative the story was, examples of some of the most emotionally effective uh, bits of the story. It's that sort of stuff, just really highlighting uh, the strongest elements of the book so that when okay. they do read it, it's it's something that they can have in their mind as they engage that experience so that they know to look for those things, you know? Mm, like, yeah. I don't know if I would just give it to anyone and just be like, yeah, read this. Yeah. Go for it. You know, like I, I, I do feel like I would go out of my way to provide a little bit of context. You could just give them the link to this podcast episode. Yeah. But I don't want people to listen to us. You don't want people to listen to us. <laughs> Dang. I, I do You're not do this podcast. <laughs> that says a lot because I'm one of the co-hosts. <laughs> uh, no, you're that's, right. I, I, I can probably give them the episode, to, the link of this podcast. In the, in the time that they could read the comic book ten times, they could listen to half of our podcast episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, what about you? Do you think this is something that you would – well, I, as an additional bit to, to, to add on to that question, like, is this the kind of comic where you would have to take into consideration the audience that you'd be recommending it to? Like, would you just recommend this to anybody and everybody, or is there a certain kind of person that you would recommend it to? I think if the other person is somebody that doesn't – like violence at all or isn't interested in stories that deal with you know darker themes and and you know wanton destruction and carnage and stuff like that yeah if they're not interested in reading an action comic then i I guess i probably wouldn't hand it off to them but yeah if it's just somebody who's interested in a good experience reading a comic or someone who is interested in an action comic or likes science fiction or just likes animals. Yeah. I think I would give this to somebody. Right. Nice. Somebody who, who just appreciates <clears throat> quality artwork. Definitely. Yeah. That's true. Like, I, I think the violence isn't for everyone. Yeah, that That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about it and I was I was thinking of our friend uh Chrissy uh the one who just got married in Hawaii and I was like eh, there's a chance that this could be something that she could like it's but yeah now that I Is think it? of the violence <laughs> yeah, you know it's a heartwarming story about animals yeah yeah they just happen to maim and kill people in between the bits of heartwarmingness we should give her a copy of this just to tell her, just to see what she thinks. And let's not tell her any context or anything about it. Let's just see her reaction. I'm pretty sure she'd hate it in retrospect. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if she, she's too into the idea of animals being hurt. That's true. That's, yeah. that's, that's a good probably point. the main thing. That's probably the main thing. Yeah. Like, I think there's a part of me that wants to believe that if she can get past the the animals being hurt to to the you know the heartwarming uh you know 
story of these animals finding a home and moving. finding peace, uh, then yeah, great, right? But, but I I don't know if she can get past that. I, I I feel like that might be her 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 line of demarcation. Have to ask her next time we see her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we are now do you at have the end of the episodes? This is the point where we uh, come up with various recommendations for people who might have liked the comic we just discussed. So, <clears throat> Albert, what would you recommend to people who enjoyed Week Three? Uh, the first thing that came up to my mind when I read this was a book called Rover Red Charlie. It was by Garth Ennis. I forget who the artist is. Um, I believe his name is Michael D. Pascal. I'm actually not familiar with any of his other comics. Rover Red Charlie is the only thing of his I think I've read. Yeah, uh, he's not someone that I'm too familiar with either. I don't think I've ever seen him on anything else. It's an Avatar um, comic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So that's that's the thing about it. So it's it's a... It's a story about a group of dogs in the apocalypse. Uh, the world has experienced a uh, a zombie outbreak, just flesh eating. Uh, they're, where they're just flesh eaters. They're they're madness zombies. You know, they're zombies that are just driven insane to to act, lash out violently. So it's about these dogs existing in this world and how they, I guess, find a way to find a way to like, you know, find their inner wild animal. You know, they they find a community with each other and they also find a way to reconnect with their inner wild animal. And the thing about it is, even though these dogs are existing in this world they do talk to each other so it's not like a wordless comic or anything like that mm-hmm. and it's a good comic but it does have a lot of garth Ennis Ennis uh signatures in it and it being an avatar book i would say that they're more pronounced or maybe not that much more than anything he's done it's it's not like it's the boys or anything like that or <laughs> and it's not nearly as bad as something like Neonomicon, <laughs> but you know, he does That's have some... more. Yeah, I know, but I just meant in terms of gratuitous, in terms of other Avatar books, it's not oh, okay, something okay. that's... I wasn't saying that he wrote that, but... Got it, got it. Yeah, but uh, but as an as because it's an Avatar book, there is still some kind of disturbing gross stuff in there, but like I, I guess I don't have any other word for it except sexual violence. So, you know, if you didn't think that We Three could could be topped in that regard, it did get topped. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that that's my one recommendation. Uh, if 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 you're looking for something similar to We Three, and mm-hmm. uh, what about you? Well, I thought you had some other uh, animal comics that. Oh, I had one more, but I thought we were just gonna like go back and forth or something. But okay, I can do uh, my second one. Um, the other one that I had in mind was, and this one's far more wholesome 
this one is a manga called Stargazing Dog. Yep. And uh, I want to say... I can hear say... you typing to Google it right now. But yeah. I, I'll tell you that the... Uh... Takashi Murakarimi? Or what is it? Takashi Murakami? Yeah. Yeah. And it's... It's... It's basically just a story of a dog and uh, their owner as they experience life together. Uh, and that's that's really the short version of it. And it's just a beautiful story of uh, the loyalty that these two have, the loyalty and love that these two have for one another. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a far more wholesome story. There's no real violence in it. Um, there's definitely pathos in it. So... I would recommend that. Yeah, that's one that's published by NBM Comics Lit in America. I, I, I bought that one quite some years ago, but earlier to, today I was uh, looking it up and I just learned that uh, there were actually a couple additional chapters published in Japan that haven't been translated into English. So I'm kind of jealous that we don't have those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, the thing is about that book is, if you hadn't told me that, if you read the book to its conclusion, it, yeah. it, it's a pretty satisfying conclusion in and of itself. Yeah, it's a definitely a definitive, satisfying ending. Yeah, but, you know, like you, I, I would, just because if there is more, why would I not want more? Exactly. I'm not the Jedi I should be. <laughs> I want more. I know I shouldn't. <laughs> what about you? Well, first up, I guess I gotta just shout out all the other Morrison Quietly joints. They've done a lot together. We've mentioned most of them already, but I'll just run down the list. But they did Flex Mentallo for Vertigo. They did JLA Earth 2, which is a graphic novel they did some new x-men stories specifically e is for extinction and riot at xavier's those two particular story arcs and there's also the enough said uh, wordless issue that they did i, I want to say it was issue 121 could be off by a number or two i think that one was called silence Psy psychic rescue in progress they also did all-star superman which was 12 issues long. And at that length, it's their most substantial work together in terms of pages. Yeah. They did the first three issues of Batman and Robin during Grant Morrison's overall run on the character. And they also did an issue of the multiversity called Pax Americana, which was essentially their take on Watchmen, even though nominally it's really a take on the Charleston universe of characters that DC had bought up, which inspired Watchmen. So yeah, any of those would be great to read. They're all they're all good stuff. Yeah. In terms I of I forget. Oh, oh yeah, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead, please. No, no, no. No. What did you please. forget? What did you nothing, nothing. What did you forget? <laughs> Tell me what you forgot, Albert. Never mind. I'm waiting for you to finish so uh, in case you you mention it anyway. So by all means go. Okay. Okay. So 
the, the other comic that I was going to recommend, and this is kind of a left field choice. It doesn't really have anything to do with animals. It doesn't really have anything to do with the military or weapons of war. But there's this European comic called Monolith by the creator Lorenz, and his name is spelled all caps L-R-N-Z. Okay. Uh, it's published by Magnetic Press. And I got it, uh, I don't know, like a year and a half ago, maybe almost two years ago, because uh, the artwork looked pretty awesome. But this this is a comic about a car, and it takes place in the near future where somebody develops a car that is supposed to be the safest and most dependable and reliable car where you won't get into any danger if you're in it. It's like built to protect you. But... The thing is, is that this car is so secure that it, it's not a car that you can break into either. And the story is about a mother who goes on a road trip with her infant son. And as they're driving through a, uh, the wilderness on a highway road in, in between locations, they're essentially in the middle of nowhere in the desert. She steps out of the car to after uh, avoiding an accident. Uh, because there was some roadkill or something. I forget exactly. There was something on the on the road makes her get out of the car for some reason. But she locks herself out of the car and her baby is still inside. And it's just this terrifying situation where she can't break into this super safe, super secure car. And the reason why I chose this book as a recommendation is because I like how it plays with the idea of technology and how something that <clears throat> that uh, men develop from a technological basis ends up becoming a danger, you know? And maybe it's not, in this case, it's not intentionally a danger, but I do like how it plays with those themes of technology being something that can harm and uh, essentially, uh, yeah, just be dangerous to people. What were you going to say, Albert? I mean, the other thing that I guess is worth recommending is the Grant Morrison book, Luda, uh, that being his newest work that just came out. I thought it would only make sense to put that up there. It's relevant. Yeah, I don't really know anything about it. I haven't read yeah, it or anything. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, you know, for people who uh, want to you know read more of his work he he does have something new coming out he's got quite a few things that i i haven't had a chance to catch up on um in terms of uh you know prose works so there's that uh i never read his super gods uh that's something i i do want to check out someday so i did read that that one was pretty interesting yeah yeah it's a non-fiction book about his views on mythology and superheroes and comics i think there's some kind of autobiographical stuff because he i think he writes about like his own tastes and and history and with comics but uh yeah that that's definitely some fascinating reading it's it's worth it if you're a superhero fan yeah i wonder if they have an audiobook of it and if it's read by grant morrison himself because <laughs> That would just that would just make the experience that much greater for me. That would be pretty great, wouldn't it? I would be so into that. 
Right. Well, do you have any more uh, recommendations or are you good? I think the final thing would just be another animal comic since I thought you were going to mention it. You mentioned it to me earlier this week, but Beast of Burden. Oh, yeah. yeah. I did mention it. I forgot about I, that. <laughs> I thought that was what you had forgotten you were going to talk about that. But Beast of Burden by Evan Dorkin, Jill Thompson, yeah. and Benjamin Dewey, put yeah. out by Dark Horse Comics. It's it's a supernatural kind of horror story where the animals of the neighborhood end up teaming up to protect their humans from, I guess, monsters and yeah. demonic threats. Yeah. There's a, there's a little they, bit of violence, but it's it's for some reason it doesn't feel quite as gruesome, even though I think there is some sort of gruesome stuff in there. It's probably on the same level as as like a Hellboy or something. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's there is something about it that's more that does feel more charming. I mean, Jill Thompson's art is definitely helps or it's more just cute or just visually like easier to look at um Mm -hmm. but yeah it's it's a fun comic where you know animals use animal magic to to fight various animal ghosts and animal demons yeah (laughs) it's a fun story well if you guys have anything to say if you have any questions about um you know we three or any of the other comics that we discussed today hit us up on between the gutters podcast at gmail.com or you can hit us up on our instagram at between the gutters please follow us and like us we're we just hit 500 subscribers again so we're trying to get that number high so you know help us out i'm not above debasing myself for this i might be though yeah i know you are but (laughs) we're not talking about that (laughs) so feel free to like Share, like, and subscribe, whatever you got to do. Uh, you know, we appreciate it. And if you can give us five stars on whatever uh, platform you happen to be listening to us on, uh, that would be great too. All right. Next week, we are going to continue our read through of Mobile Suit Gundam The Origin by Yoshikazu Yasuhiko. And <laughs> we are going to be reading Volume 9. Thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you next time. Bye, guys.